I'm Will Primos, and you're listening to the Fochi Creek Podcast. This is Cody Robbins from Live to Hunt with Cody and Kelsey, and you're listening to Joby and Shed with the Fochi Creek Podcast. You're listening to Joby and Shed on Fochi Creek Podcast. You're listening to Joby and Shed on the Fochi Creek Podcast. It's not as good to speak the language, but it's close. <laughs> this is Ben Rising with Whitetail Edge, and you're listening to Fochi Creek Podcast with Shed and Joby. This is Austin Delano with Mossy Oak Biologic and Gamekeepers, and you're listening to Joe B. and Shed Whitaker on Forsy Creek Podcast. Well, you're listening to the Forsy Creek Podcast. I'm Joe B. Holland. With me is Mr. Dustin Shed Whitaker. In today's episode, we have Mr. Greg Lessinger of Drury Outdoors, and Greg is more than just Drury Outdoors, so we'll get to hear who he is. But, Greg, we appreciate you taking the time to spend some of your evening with us. I try to, to read everything I can about folks that are killing big deer, and I, when you start uh, looking at who those people are, it's a fairly short list of people that do it consistently, and and you're most definitely uh, one of those. You've uh, you've done an outstanding job with all that you do. So we look forward to spend some time with you and pick your brain a little bit about what has made you successful. For so thanks for being with us, Greg. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I uh, I was glad you guys reached out. You know, Facebook. You guys reached out several months ago, and I've had problems with my Facebook messaging, and I don't know why. And then one day I opened it up and then bam, they all fell. And I was like, man, I got some, I got some catching up to do. So, and you guys were at the top of my list of catching up. So I apologize for being so, so behind. No, I appreciate you getting back to us. Greg, if you would, just for folks that have been sleeping or hiding somewhere and don't know who you are, tell us a bit about who Greg Lessinger is. Uh, you can go back as far as you want to, uh, family, anything that you want to include as far as who makes who you are. You know, I was, I'm, I'm blessed to be born and raised in Papillion, Nebraska, which is a suburb of Omaha. My father was a huge influencer, probably more than he realizes. He, he worked two jobs entire life. He was a factory guy, and then he farmed on the side. And when I say farmed on the side, it was a true side hustle, but he worked at that more than he did his real job. And he would come home at 3 o'clock, 3.30, and he would change clothes, and we wouldn't see him till sometimes midnight or two, two, three in the morning. And there'd be days that stretch when I was a kid, I wouldn't see him for days because I would always be asleep when he left and be asleep when he came home. And, you know, I, I hated him for a long time because he <laughs> made me work my tail off on the farm. And I mean, I really didn't, I lost a lot of good memories with my friends and good times. But one thing I didn't realize when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old running a tractor that he, he was teaching me much more about life and what it took to be successful, I just didn't know it and I didn't see it. And it came full circle later in life that, you know, life is pretty simple if you break it down into categories and you can't get ahead of life on anything you do without hard work. And so I was very lucky to have an, uh, a father that really preached that not by his words, but by his actions. Then we went to, I went to uh, college at Northwest Missouri State met some a lot of good friends there did a lot of waterfowl hunting did a lot of a lot of bird hunting as a kid my two cousins three cousins and uncle uh they only lived a block away and they were huge into pheasant, uh, pheasant and quail and so we did a ton of that growing up every time we had a weekend and a free if if it, it was in season we were chasing some type of flying bird those guys really i was the baby at the time and those guys put me under their wing and 
and show me the ropes. And without those guys, I don't think the outdoor lifestyle would ever been introduced because dad and his uncle or his brother, my uncle, grew up in Spalding, Nebraska. And in Spalding, Nebraska, they actually hunted for, for truly food to survive. They lived out in, in the countryside and, and they didn't have much. He told me that, you know, I don't understand hunting in a sport to him that does not go in the same category. He sees hunting as a way to put food on the table on a daily basis. And he was not much of an outdoors guy. He pretty much uh, showed me a little bit and then pushed me down the street to his brother. And his brother took me under his wing. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where it all started. And then I got really heavy in the waterfowl with a couple high school buddies and um, did that real serious. And that carried into college. Met some guys in college that were waterfall junkies. And then I really didn't start deer hunting until I was, oh, probably, I'm going to shoot at the hip here and say 27-ish, maybe 28. And I met, uh, well, I met my wife in Papillion. And, you know, when you get downwind of your favorite doe, wherever she goes, you seem to follow. <laughs> and uh, she, uh, she took me to Wisconsin, and that's where I, I've been ever since. And I met her, her brother. Uh, for the first time in central Wisconsin or in central Minnesota, a place called Akeley, Minnesota, which is by Leech Lake, or maybe for more people would say three hours north of Minneapolis, really in the middle of nowhere. And we met him, and, and he had uh, a brand new Fred bow, a Fred Bear bow, just got it, and he was sighting it in. I've never seen a bow, never drew a bow, knew nothing about it. And uh, he said, You want to shoot? And I said, Sure, you know, why not? Just tell me what to do. And I let that arrow go for the first time and I looked at my girlfriend at the time, which was his sister, Lisa, and she goes, for God's sake, you don't need another hobby. <laughs> and I've, I've put down the rifles, I've put down the shotguns, I have very little bird hunt now, I've completely changed my passion. And if it's, if it's with a stick and string, uh, you don't have to ask me twice. Just point the truck and I'll load and we'll go. Hmm. Little did your wife know where you were headed with this little hobby. No, and I didn't either, to be honest. Uh, we were there for three or four days, and I shot his bow, bow more than he did for that period of time because I was just so infatuated with it. And then I got back to, uh, we live outside of Cambridge, Wisconsin, out in the country, and I just started reading as much as I could and went to a local archery shop and hung out there as much as I could and just, you know, started diving in the information and just trying to figure out what I needed to figure out and haven't looked back since. i tell you what, you, you nearly collided with fate several times there in Northwest Missouri. That'd be at Kirksville. Uh, that's kind of a mecca in Missouri as far as big bucks. So you, how, how did you go through those four years unscathed? Of, was it the waterfowl is kind of what uh, conflicted there? Yeah, it was just all my connections. You know, I didn't deer hunt and I was a pheasant and quail guy. So I had all the gear for upland stuff and in high school, we did a bunch of waterfowl stuff, and when I got to college, I met, oh, five or six guys, one of which uh, his father had a, a private piece outside of, uh, 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 is it Carroll, Missouri? There's a, there's a huge uh, uh, public reserve. Um, God, I wish I knew the name. In the northwest corner of Missouri, and we would go to his place on weekends. Matter of fact, it got so bad, it was the first time I missed Thanksgiving because 
we got the invite to go over Thanksgiving, which was, you know, four days of hunting. I called my mom. I said, Mom, I said, I got this opportunity to go waterfowl hunting, probably one of the best places in, in the Midwest. And she goes, well, I don't really care. You need to be here for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I, Dad was on the phone. He said, that's a bad choice. And I said, well, last time I checked, I'm old enough now. I think I can make this choice on my own. And I went, I went, I went goose hunting. <laughs> And that, that still haunts me. My first and only ever missing Thanksgiving, and it still haunts me today. But we had fun, and it was the most epic goose hunt I've ever been on in my life. Still to this day, it was just amazing. Outstanding. Well, tell us a little bit more. Obviously, you're, you're married to Lisa. Is that right? And I, I yep, think I've seen correct. your son, yep. Derek, on, I believe it's Derek, yep. on some videos yep, with you. Yeah, son Derek. He just, turned, uh, he just turned 19 last week. And then I've got a daughter, Nicole, who will be 21. She'll be 21 in April. So um, she she has no interest in in the she she loves fishing. She has no interest in hunting. She loves the outdoors, whether it be hiking, camping, any of that type of thing. She's all in. But anything to do with hunting, she's out. But Derek enjoys it. He's he's so busy with hanging out with the dudes and. And you know that whole scene at 19 that uh, he hunts a little bit, but not as much as I'd like him to. But yeah. uh, you know he's he's got college now, and he's got bigger things to be working on and figuring out than hanging out with me. So right. I got a feeling that'll come first, so called in another three or four years it, when he's got more will. time to do it. It will, no no doubt about it. Tell us what you do. What's your your day job, if you will? I'm in the radiology space. So what we do is we uh, provide uh, PET-CT, CT, digital memo, uh, and MRI services to a lot of predominantly rural marketplaces in the country. So we'll bring the unit, we'll bring the staff, and um, bring the state-art equipment that most smaller facilities can't get to because they can't justify the cost um, or justify the expense or maybe not have the personnel. So I've been in that space now for Man, you're making me think. Uh, 25 years, probably 24 years. I'm losing track of time, but that's probably a good guess. Um, and um, start with the juries. Uh, this 2022 will be unofficially my 11th year. Well, officially my 11th year. Unofficially, be my 13th. I think the 13th or 14th year. And why there's a, a I guess, a gap in time is back then when you came on as a team member you had to earn yourself onto the team they didn't make you a team member right away they they let you try for a year or two make sure that your footage was good and you're meeting their expectations uh you know not doing anything foolish uh you know in the public's eye when you're not in front of the camera with all the sponsorships that they have making sure the personality fits and that whole thing and so um, once that happened, they made me full team member 11 years ago and I've been there ever since. Now, what got you connected with that? Uh, how did you get started with them? Well, the truth be said is I met Mark, uh, a long time ago. Um, Shed probably doesn't even know this, but I was part of bad boy buggies. Um, I'm sure. I remember that. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. I remember and, the bad boy buggy days. And so I, I actually, to most people don't know this story, but I actually took a $2,200 golf cart, jacked it up, lifted it, racked it up, cameled it out, all that stuff. It was a machine of all machines. 
until I got stuck in central Wisconsin in snow and I realized I needed a four-wheel drive mechanism. And that weekend I Googled it, Googled it and the only place I could find a four-wheel drive mechanism for a golf cart was a company out of Natchez, Mississippi called Bad Boy Enterprises, otherwise known as BBE. And I called them and I kid you not, um, the guy who answered his phone was named Bubba and I say this with all due respect. And he, he was the man behind the engineering of it all. And uh, we played a lot of phone tag for a long time and he would not sell me that four wheel drive mechanism. No way, no how, wasn't gonna do it. And uh, finally he said, you just need to buy a unit, Greg. And I said, you know what, I'll, I'm gonna come down and check it out. So my father-in-law, he was freed up and he jumped on the plane with me and we went down there and they gave me a unit, went up and down a few hills and I'm like, this is exactly what I thought it was gonna be. It met my expectations and then uh, they took us out to dinner and then the next morning I said hey I said you know we're flying out the next morning and and they said let's meet for breakfast before you leave and I said sure well unfortunately being an entrepreneur guy myself I did not sleep that night I think I went to bed at like 4 a.m. and I put a business plan together that night and when I sat down with breakfast he said, as much as you know about this product because you've already done it we want you to be a dealer and the, the closest bad boy at the time was uh, Don and Candy Kitsky had one. That was the farthest north. All their sales were Georgia, Mississippi, and Texas. That's pretty much where they had them all. So there, it wasn't bad boy buggies when I, when I came down there. It was BBE was the company. Um, so I pushed it across the table. I said, I don't want to be a dealer. I want to be a distributor. And I said, I'm willing to buy... 26 states here's the business plan here's how we're going to do it your logo is is needs some work your business plan is here we need to go after the outdoor channel here's the guys we're gonna we're gonna sign on to ride our back and if you guys remember michael waddell had just came out with realtree road trips that's how old this is with that old k2 chevy blazer that's that's when i came on board and um long story short 60 days later um we had pad to pen and we inked it and um, we took that company from nothing to where it was before we sold it and that's how I met Mark and Terry and all those guys was through that and um, I, I met them uh, but they really didn't know them obviously just met them from who they are and in business relationships and stuff like that and nothing really came of it all and I ran into a, a friend of mine uh, Brian Thompson who was a DOD team member at the time who still doesn't live far from me today and he was uh, talking to him and we became good friends and just in conversation I said you know one of these days I want to get to Iowa and hunt Iowa and maybe buy a piece of property down there someday and didn't really take, think much about it and uh, Mark Drury called me Christmas Eve night this is about 13 or 14 years ago and it's one of those moments in time that it, things just kind of slow down because I was a big whitetail guy at the time and when I answered the phone I recognized the voice but I didn't realize why was he calling me it took me a couple seconds for me to put it together and he said well this is Mark Drury and he goes I want to talk to you and I'm, and I'm like oh okay I don't know why but sure let's talk <laughs> and I said unfortunately Mark I said I got family and friends from out of town um, you know can I call you another day and he said yeah call me a couple days later so I did and he uh, invited me down. He had a small little piece of property he was going to sell, and he wanted to sell it to somebody that he knew he could trust. 
and Brian Thompson, Thompson gave me a pretty good, um, I guess, reference. And uh, I showed up at his house. And at that time, uh, he lived in Grand River, which is one of his first houses when he moved here and uh, to Iowa. And I got there about 6.30, 7 o'clock, and we didn't go to bed till like 4, 4.30 a.m. <laughs> and I laid my head on the pillow thinking one thing which was, this is the most intensive interview I've ever had in my entire life. And I've been through doctors and radiologists most of my career. So I'm like, this is crazy. And he was trying just to sort buy, me out. Just What's to buy that? a piece of property? Right. He was trying to sort me out of, could he trust me? You know, am I the type of neighbor he wants? Um, all those type of things. And we know when he makes his living that way, I can understand why he was doing what he was doing. Um, it got to the point, honestly, Shed, and Joe, be that I looked him at a couple questions. I said, you know what? I got no problem answering these, but you're going to have to tell me the same question. Because <laughs> I said, this is getting pretty deep. And I said, I have no problem doing it, but you're not getting away from these questions. He said, all right, fair. So it became throwing mud against the wall, and it became quite comical. You know, it was, it was quite hilarious. But uh, so anyway, long story short, I ended up buying the piece, and then um, – he, he invited me to uh, be part of the team, and I said absolutely not because I was so addicted to bow hunting. And, you know, when you throw a camera guy into it, it's double scent, double sound, double the movement, all those variables that as a true bow hunter, I don't want any part of it. And so I said no, and first year I shot a 162 and 7 eighths. And that, at that year, 14 years ago, would have been the largest deer shot on camera on the DOD team, if I was a team member, I was not. And that next year, he that spring, he said, man, I got to have you. And I said, I'm not interested. And so I dodged him another year. And then I shot a 154 and change. And then he called me a third time and said, hey, here's the deal. I'm going to send you a camera guy. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. And I haven't looked back since. It's amazing where life leads you sometimes with the decisions you make and the things you, you put in place. You, you just never know what the outcomes are going to be, and it sure worked out for you. It's been fun. It's, it's been a great ride. I've, I've learned a ton. Um, I'm 10 times the hunter today than I was 13, 14 years ago, and I think it goes back to anything in life. If you really want to be good at whatever you do in life, you know, surround, with, surround yourself with people that you want to be like or take from and they'll lift you up, you know, and you can suck a lot of knowledge from and and I'm definitely a byproduct of, of Mark and Terry without a shadow of a doubt. You know, you spend like your first night from six or seven in the evening to four in the morning having conversations like you did. I'm sure you've had many of those since then with him. The relationships get developed pretty quick over conversations like that, I'm sure, don't they? They do. You know, there was uh, my first three years Mark would invite me over, you know, when we were down here for the last few weeks of October and the first, you know, week or so of November when things are really rolling, he would invite myself, uh, Jay Gregory. Back then it was uh, Jared Lurk, Terry, and all the camera guys, and I was just the newbie. I was lucky just to be invited, and, and we'd go to his house, and we would have dinner, and we'd, I'd sit around and just soak in the info. You know, I was the, the quiet guy in the corner. And after two or three years of doing that, Mark said, hey, man, you, you don't say much. And I said, 
I really don't have much to add to this conversation. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm truly here to listen and take in everything because those guys were talking about stuff that they probably taught me more than they forgot in those living rooms all those years. But I was, <laughs> I was taking mental notes, you know. Without those opportunities, I'm not so sure I'd be where I am today and, you know, tipping over the stuff I'm tipping over. You know, since we're talking about the juries, if, if you look over those, you know, 13 or 14 plus years that you've been associated with them, what are some of the takeaways that have, have made you what you are today compared to the hunter you were then? Are there some things that really stick out to you? Well, some of this stuff happened. The more you know, the more you learn, the more you learn, the more you ask questions. Mm -hmm. And the more I started getting sharper and the more I started, you know, listen, because deer hunting is is very much like a chess match right which is everybody has their own theories everybody has their own things that works for them it doesn't mean it's going to work for you and it doesn't mean you can't do it differently um but when you start listening to different things and different theories you start going to other guys and talking to them and listening to their theories and then you start pulling different theories from different guys and pulling stuff and you're like okay i like this i don't like that i like this and you kind of mold your own way and 99% of stuff that, you know, Mark and I really agree on. There's a few things we don't agree on, but who am I to say and look at his success, right? I mean, he's second to none. So, you know, but I, I have my own successes, but I've done a little bit differently. Um, some, a lot of similarities, of course, but there are some differences. But to your point, what I've learned most is two things. Ralph Inchler told me this one thing. 20 years ago, back when seminars is the only way to get information, we had podcasts back then, is you can't hunt something that's not there. And I've always learned that. That stuck to me hard because I was a guy always, you know, trying to, to get myself better. And I'm like, man, if it's not here, how are you going to hunt them? And so that was my number one key. And then um, the other thing was access. When I truly understood Mark describing access and truly it's one thing to be heard. It's different to be seen and smelt. And once I took that to another level um, is when that started to change as far as seeing deer and getting on big deer. Now, getting on big deer and killing big deer is different. And about 10 years ago, I spent a lot of time back in the PSC days. I got to be really good friends with, with Pete Shepley. And um, I really started breaking apart or breaking down uh, arrow weight and speed and FOC and feet per second. And I realized, and, and I know that there's Ranch Ferry. He's the famous guy on YouTube. If you haven't heard him, you can look him up, who talks a lot about heavy over, you know, 550 to 650 grain arrows for whitetails. Hey, that, it works for him. I, I, don't, I don't see why that would work for me. Um, it's not something, a theory that I want to jump on, but I have completely changed my setups. And since I've changed my setups about 10 years ago, our success rate has gone through the roof, you know? Um, and I think it has a lot to do with setting up the farms, right? But I think it also has to do with execution, but our setups or our, our whitetail setups are way faster and I'm not worried about grain weight. I am to a certain degree, but I'm worried about speed. I've watched hundreds of hours of does dropping um, on food plots and bucks. You know, they say it's jumping the string. Well, I would disagree with that. I'd say it's jumping the arrow because if you ever dig them down, down range of an arrow, 
you can hear it coming. And with all the footage that we've I've watched, the first deer that moves is the deer you're shooting at. The rest of them react to that. And it's a domino effect. And so I'm like, you know, let's just call it, you know, eight to 10 inches is really your kill zone on a whitetail if you're going after the longs. And they move so quick, they can cut that, you know, eight or 10 inches in half that quick. And so I'm like, I got to figure out how to get that arrow there faster, flatter, so that when they do this, I'm going to still hit that kill zone. And so I found that magic number to be plus or well north of 310 feet per second is is my success rate and when things start changing and then that typically puts my arrow weight right about anywhere from 405 to 410. i've gone as low as 380 and i didn't like the results of that we still killed them all but i didn't like the results of it um arrows were snapping it was too light but that 410 arrow is kind of my perfect sweet spot for whitetails and we're pushing that between 310 and 312 depending on the bow and since we've done that our success rate has gone through the roof and that's probably a big key to our success honestly how much time greg do you spend you know obviously you kind of got your setup now where you want it what works for you but how, how much time do you spend shooting your bow during a well during the off season during the season um, right now, not, you know, off season, not much. It's, it's when we, I work, I work on the setup, uh, cause typically we get new bows every year traditionally. And then that starts over, which is good and bad. Um, but it's usually, I mean, I weigh the inserts, I weigh the veins, I weigh the arrows. Um, you know, they're, I, I spin them all, um, come, I would say, june may june is when i start shooting a lot and making adjustments um and i do a lot of of once i get it dialed in and i like the, the foc and i like the feet per second and we're good for that rig i usually i don't go out and pound 30 or 40 arrows i i have a target by my house i'm lucky enough to be in the country and i put arrows in my bow in a very simple spot that i can literally walk it grab it go shoot a, shoot one and walk back in. I never sit there and pound 15 or 20 arrows in a row once I get it dialed in. And I've and they say, why? And I said, well, do you ever get to pound 15 or 20 arrows when you're out hunting? No, you get one. And if you can't figure out how to shoot the one dead cold and do it right, then obviously you gotta work on your setup or your form or whatever it's gonna be. So I do that. I wouldn't call it every day of the week, but a lot. And I do it all year long. And then we had had West come in in September. So I got motivations to keep things moving because so, August comes pretty quick. When did you start weighing your inserts and your veins? And did you start doing that? You said uh, when you start with Pete Shepley, is he kind of the one that got you, got you Pete doing Pete Shepley, that? really, I, I spent a white tail camp with him, dumb luck. I was actually a PSC pro shooter before I came to DOD before I was a team member. Um, I, I spent uh, four days, five, four days with Pete Shepley at a whitetail camp, and I was lucky enough to share a room with him. So I was lucky enough to be in camp, I was lucky <laughs> enough to have the same room. And we never, out of those three nights, we didn't go to bed no earlier than 2 a.m. Because I was a Matthews guy back then, being born being moved in Wisconsin. If you didn't shoot a Matthews and you lived in Wisconsin, you were chastised, right? So. I was a Matthews guy laying in bed 
literally four feet away from the president and founder of PSC. So you figure out how awkward he was throwing darts at me for seven, eight hours a day, right? And by the time we left camp, he was so fascinated of my thought process and what I was doing. I got a phone call the next week. He said, hey, if you're willing to switch, I want you on the team. And I'm like, sure, let's do this thing. And so I became a PSC pro shooter before I was a part of the DOD team. And that's where it started. And he, he was, he still is a friend of mine, even though that I shoot Matthews now, we still talk um, about animals and hunts and the industry and all that type of stuff. And he, uh, he just taught me so much that, you know, the more you break down your rig and your arrow and your flight, and your veins and all that stuff and focus on FOC, you will change your success rate. And I was a student of the game and I'm like, okay, the more I read about it and understood it, it just started starting to dot started connecting and I just started doing it on my own. And you walk into my shop now on my, on my workbench, it's a calculator and tons of paperwork because it's just a mathematical equation. I wear myself out every single year to reset and figure it all out. And, and ever since I've been doing that, we, we just have so much more success. I'm going to jinx myself, but we just don't miss. Um, and I think a lot of it is because I have confidence in the rig. I put so much energy. I put the time behind the bow and it just seems to happen. So before then I couldn't, I couldn't honestly tell you that it wasn't the case. Now, what do you say to the to the regular guy who gets his bow set up at the pro shop or where he buys it, takes it home, shoots it next year, gets it out? He might shoot a few before he goes, or like a lot of people do. What what would you suggest they do? Because obviously they're probably not going to go from the extreme they are to the extreme you are. But what what's something that would help them? Kind of what simple suggestions would you give them that they need to do to to increase their success and their accuracy? Nine times out of ten. When someone walks up to me and asks me all kinds of stuff about my setup, I ask it back to them. I said, how much does your, your boat, your arrow weigh? More often than not, I'm going to say seven to eight out of 10, they don't know. Then my next question is, what's the FOC? Well, if they don't know their grain of the arrow, they don't know their FOC. And they say, well, you know, we just go buy them. We bring them home. We shoot them. The archery guy says, this is what we need. And a lot of these guys are into fancy fletching, wraps dipping the arrows, making them look all good. But for every five grains that you put on the tail end of your arrow, you got to offset it by 20 on the front. So you're compounding your problem by all this, I guess, you know, glorifying your arrow to make it look cool. I don't care how my arrow looks. I want to kill stuff. And so it's very counterproductive. So when we sit down and we talk to these guys, they all walk away and say, well, the first thing I'm going to do is start over with my arrows. I said, that's exactly where I would start. Because if you understand it, you understand the fly of the arrow, it's easier to, to pull something than it is to push something, right? So if you had a rock and you tied a string you threw the rock, the string is going to follow that rock. But if you try to throw the string and the rock's going to, it's not, it's physics doesn't work. So you want that, you know, minimum of 15% FOC. I think you start getting over 20%. You're probably having you know, not the effect that you want. It, it becomes counter counterproductive. I like that 15 to 18% with all the testing that I've done is a magical number. And shoot, I shot, I shot completely through. I was at uh, elk camp with uh, Lee Likoski. He called me, we jumped on a plane and went to Alberta this past fall. I shot an Al Al Alberta mule deer, which are way bigger animals than here in North America, as far as body size. 
and I shot him at 52 yards and that arrow stuck in the ground after going clean through him. And they were like, the outfitter's like, holy smokes, what are you shooting? There's only a 510 grain arrow, but it's the way it's set up and the way it hits that makes the difference. Now, Greg, this time of year to me, when my season gets over here in Missouri and Illinois around January 15th and uh, I did on Ohio this year, which they go on to February, but it's kind of a time of mourning, if you will. And I'm sure you- <laughs> Yeah, hey man, I'm mourning with you. <laughs> yeah, I would feel that you'd have to, I believe that you'd have to feel the same way. What, what are you doing this time of year? Because I, I can't imagine the day goes by, you're not doing something in preparation for next year. So what, what have you been doing since season has been over? Well, right now I, I actually busted my tail uh, to get to my uh, Iowa cabin to get on this call. And we are doing timber stand improvement and, and um, trimming trees and clearing cedars and all that stuff right now. And we're gonna do that for the next two months. So we have a window here for two months that we're gonna do all our off season prep. Um, you know, there, there's an old saying I've heard many guys say it, you don't kill them in the fall, you kill them in the off season with the off season prep. Uh, you obviously, obviously literally kill them in the fall, but all the preparation that we do now is what's going to allow us to, to set ourselves up for success this fall. So we, we really spend a lot of time all season long, um, on these next 60 days. Matter of fact, when we go to hunt Casey's, uh, my sidekick, um, he's more than a camera guy. He's farm manager and he, he does a lot of stuff, uh, outside of just filming. And he's a wealth of knowledge on his own, own category. And when we sit, you know, and in these sits that we have, even though we may not harvest something that afternoon, we're going to harvest information. And we have notes in our phones and we sit down and we talk about deer coming from which side of the plots to age structure to, you know, whatever we're seeing and we're making notes of it. So we can rack and stack those notes at the end of the year and then attack them this time of the year and obviously we can't get it all we never will but we'll rack them and and uh, priority list and tack the best that we can and since we've been doing that is when our success rate on big deer when i say big deer boon or bigger is when things have really changed now, Greg, where do you where all do you hunt in a year's time and what where do you own properties at um depends on the year we we always hunt um iowa um missouri uh wisconsin uh, we, we try, I've been to Oklahoma once, I've been to Kansas three times, been to Illinois twice, um, where else, uh, been to Alberta, and then we go out west every year to either Colorado or New Mexico, chasing mule deer and elk, depending on what I can line up, but that's always, uh, we're always gone for at least, at least two weeks out there for sure, chasing them out there. And do you own properties in, you own property in Iowa, don't you? Yes, sir. Okay. Yep. Iowa and Missouri. Yeah. Okay. I started that theory when I met Mark that, you know, call it 14, 15 years ago. I was drawn to this part of the world, obviously, because of, of whitetails, but I also drawn because um, I wanted to, to hunt two states that I could drive less than 30 minutes to do it. And so I worked on that theory uh, while it's taken me I don't know what, how's it been almost, almost 15, 20 years ago to get here because I, I was already in Missouri. Uh, I was in Iowa and then I, and I got into Missouri shortly after meeting Mark. Um, 
And so my farms are really, as a crow flies, well, drive time, they're 22 minutes apart. Um, so we have one place and we travel between the two. So we, we've always got, depending on wind direction or what deer we're going, we're always in the game, almost always. So um, that that is, I guess, call it my pine box, as my wife calls it. This has been my livelihood passion forever. And now that I'm here um, and it's all come together, we, we literally just built a new house and um, just moved in cabin, uh, was it November 15th of last fall. So I've been working on this dream for about 20 years. Um, so it's, it's been very, very, I'm very lucky and very blessed, but it's been fun. Is there anything more rewarding for you? Like than right now you're doing your, your timber stand improvement and all the improvements I'm sure that you made over the course of time. And then to kill that big mature deer on a property that you really know that that deer wouldn't have appeared there. Had you not put the things in place that you did, is there anything much more rewarding than that? No, no, not at all. It, it truly is. When a deer does what you think it's going to do because of what you did, Casey and I just look at each other and just smile, you know, because because they are the, the, the ultimate chess match. I mean, they're crazy smart. They're they're so tough to outthink, you know, they're hell, they wake up for one thing every single day, and that's to survive. Yeah. And when you can get anything of age, when I say of age, I'm talking you know, a lot of people call four years mature. We really focus on five, six, and seven um, is, is our goal. And it's really tough to get a mature, we go, take score out of it. It's really hard to get a mature buck within bow reins consistently inside the kill zone with a bow. And if you can do that, you're doing something. And that's, it's, it's just gotten better and better because of our habitats, our habitats gotten better and better. And we, we uh, have learned techniques to, you know, manipulate them in the direction or give them reasons to come or give them reasons to stop in a certain part of where we want them to, to give us the opportunities with the stick and string. And we, we do gun hunt, but we gun hunt to take out uh, management bucks. But our passion is 99% it's a stick and string opportunity. Well, tell us a little about your your 2021 season, and I'd like to go back and and talk about your uh, 2017 to 20 with extra innings, triple play, major league, which leads me to believe that you're a baseball enthusiast as well. <laughs> so, but tell us a little bit about uh, your past 2021 hunting season. How how did this year past year go for you? It was it was the most you well my most unique and most difficult. Um, we start out really well and when things come together so well, you start to wonder, you know, what kind of horseshoe you're carrying in your backpack. But our first trip took us to Colorado and we tipped over a uh, 185 class uh, mule deer at, I think it was, what was he, 47 yards. And that was on day three or day four, I'm losing track of time. And that was a, a full velvet, flawless buck, amazing, amazing hunt. It was perfect. And then we went after elk a few days later, and we, we couldn't we couldn't find one or get one to work with us to save our lives. And then we came home and started chasing whitetails, and, and Casey went on a heck of a run. Um, he shot his his largest, a 171 with a bow. Um, and so that was pretty exciting. And, and 
I uh, usually at the beginning of the year, there's usually one, if not two deer that I focus on. And that's, that's all I'm going to shoot um, due to age structure and obviously size. And we just, we just couldn't, couldn't find them. Uh, we knew they were here, but we would go left. They would go right. We would go north. They would go side. They just, they had us beat on every single Avenue. And, um, I got a call from, uh, Lee Bukowski said, Hey, you want to go to Alberta? And I said, uh, yeah, I don't have to ask me, you know, two seconds long. And so we jump on a plane and head to Alberta. And that was probably the most unique, um, different style of hunting I've ever done. And I've been to Alaska three, three times now, and there's not a tree on the place. I mean, not a tree. And I'm like, how are we going to bow hunt these things and get within range to shoot these things? And Lee kept saying, Greg, just trust me. You, you can and you will. You're good enough to do this. And uh, we spent, oh, 12, 14 hours a day behind the glass just looking hillsides, trying to find the one we want. And we found our, the one we wanted. We nicknamed him Daryl. Um, the camera guy nicknamed him Daryl just for fun. And uh, I'm like, you know what? We, we scouted for two days. Uh, and every time we look at him, I'm like, I don't think we're going to find anything better. But every time we found him, he was in an un unkillable spot. And it took us, I think it was four days, I think. And he was coming off this hillside and going to an alfalfa open field. And they had some draws, some really uh, deep draws that he was uh, going to go down this alfalfa line that was fairly narrow. I'm going to call it, oh, probably 100 yards wide. And I looked at the outfitter, and we're up on a ridge. And I said, hey, you know, I, I don't, this is the first time I'm here. I'm just throwing some ideas from my experiences of being out west. But I said, that draw is going to run parallel to that field that I, that I think he's going to come down based on his direction and based on wind direction. If we leave this truck now and we get to that draw, which is probably a mile and a half away, that draw will cover us all the way and we just sit and if he feeds forward, we're in the chips. I said, we're just gonna have to lay down. And he's like, if you're up for it, I'm up for it. And so off we went and um, we got there and sure enough, he he did exactly what we hoped him to do is he found an alfalfa field and wind was in his favor and he fed right down that, that alfalfa way. And, and, uh, I just, uh, we ranged the outfitter ranged him at 52 and he looked at me and he goes, can you make the shot? And I said, you're dang right. So <laughs> he laid back down and I got on my two knees and, and let the victory roll. And that was it. And I couldn't believe it all came together. I, I think that's the biggest thing is knowing when the press went and when the hold, you know, we had many a times to go after him but it wasn't right, the wind, or we didn't have the cover or whatever. And I'm like, you know, if we go after him and push him, we may push him off the ranch, we may push him in another county, who knows what. I said, until it's right, we just gotta be patient. And, and, and we got it done. And it was a dead solid perfect, you know? But a lot of guys don't have the patience to let that opportunity happen. And I think that's a big thing I've learned over the years is even though you wanna go, more often than not, you're probably your worst enemy if things are not in your favor. Now, what uh, what kind of deer age-wise uh, was Daryl? 
They thought he was uh, six to seven. He went one ninety three. Um, so he was he was big. Uh, he was the biggest one shot on the ranch that year. So it was well worth the wait and well worth the effort. But it was my first Alberta deer, um, and I'm hooked for life. It was, I mean, belly crawling and trying to go through grass that's you know, call three and a half to four and a half feet tall. You don't have a lot of space. Um, so you got to really think of your terrain and use it to your advantage. And, but you got to be able to shoot, you know, Lee said, he goes, I know you can shoot, but you got to be prepared to shoot 50 to, you know, 80 yards. And if you're not, it, it's, it's really tough to go out there. How far was your shot on Daryl? 52. 52. Okay. So you got yeah. extra innings, triple play, major league and good old Daryl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we, may, we, we call our, our baseball names on the home place because it's just my son's a big baseball guy. I was a big baseball guy. I actually got uh, had a very, very short college career, but had an incredible high school career. And then me and my, my best man got invited to try out for the Phillies and the Braves when I was 19. And uh, that, that didn't last long. That lasted a weekend. I didn't realize when I showed up to see 250 guys, they made me they looked, they were looking for one and it wasn't me. <laughs> and, and every single time I could tell you who that one was. <laughs> and that was, that was time for me to hang up the, the, the gloves and the cleats at that situation. But <laughs> crazy thing is my best man, his name's Mike Danley. He went on, played Eastern Michigan football, didn't play baseball for four years, quit, came home. Atlanta Braves found out he quit, flew into town, put him on the mound through 88 first pitch, hadn't thrown a baseball in four years. <laughs> signed him that afternoon and off he went so i said if i had if you had my head and your body i said we would have went to the majors but unfortunately <laughs> you had a freaking bull bull durham head because he lasted two years and quit after he got <laughs> to triple well, so, a what a great sport uh, baseball is and the good memories from playing catch uh, with, you, with your dad in the yard and now you know, uh, i'm sure you had those years and probably coached uh derrick in the youth league i yeah. would assume yeah, I just hung up my coaching clipboard just a couple years ago, three years ago, and I coached him as, in almost his whole career, all the way through, all the way up. It was traveled all over the country with him and had loads of fun. So, baseball is very much in our life; it's in our blood. And he actually, it started all with him. So Derek's now 19. When we saw Major League for the first time, he wasn't Major League; he was just a big deer, and he was he was nine. Derek was nine at the time, so this was 10 years ago. And I was sitting at the kitchen table going through trail picks, and this one came up, and he, he looked at me and said, Dad, that is a major league deer. <laughs> and I was like, hell yeah, major league it is. Because he was the biggest deer we've ever seen. And so major league stuck. And then ever since that was the trend, any deer that is a special deer gets a baseball name. We got one on our farm now that – He's going to be special if he makes it this year, if he makes it through this winter, and we called him squeeze play because he comes around so tight that his main beams literally are, I believe, based on pictures, less than an inch away. And so we call him squeeze play. And uh, he's – if we tip him over, you're going to know about it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, Have you found his sheds yet? No, and I'm watching. We're looking. He, he hasn't dropped yet. We got trail pick. We left our cameras rolling because I want to find out when he does drop. So right now he's still carrying. We got about 50% roughly, about, plus or minus, is where we're at right now. We're still at 100% down here. Are you really? 
Yeah, there's. I haven't had any drop yet on that. Wow. Camera. But that's wow. that's Mississippi. Mississippi. It doesn't have what you have. It's. Yeah. Well, you can't have something that's not there. You know? No, that's the most. You know, all these guys down here, and I go to Kansas or I go to Ohio every year because if they ain't here, you can't kill. Them. And that's not. right. That's right. That's right. That's why I'm here. You know, yep. I, I carried my passion pretty deep in Wisconsin. And the more I read and the more I started to learn going to seminars every time I had a chance, you know, I'm like, I got to go somewhere else because it's not here. And so you either chase your dream or you just accept what's in your backyard. And I wasn't willing to accept it. So that's why I'm here. And let me tell you, I, I've been to a lot of places. I think Kansas is a wonderful spot. I think Missouri's great. I think Illinois is great. But the Iowa DNR has done something special here, and they're doing it right, and I wish other states would follow, but for whatever reason, they don't have an interest. Yeah, a whole different league there in Iowa, and just to totally different. Yeah, it's, it's hard to understand why other states haven't picked up on I'm assuming it's uh, a money thing, I would have to think, an income, revenue type of deal. I've always said you chase the money, you chase the problem. It always exposes itself, and I, th I think you're absolutely right. Well, I'll tell you what, there's two things, in my opinion, from a, especially a father-son standpoint, that the memories just can't get stronger. One of them's baseball, and one of them's deer hunting. You know, <laughs> and it, it just—I know Shed's. You know, his son Colt was he 14 now, Shed? So Shed's yep. going through the. You know, he's a baseball player. Of course, Shed's got a six-year-old too, right? Shed's he six. So mm -hmm. he's got a ways. You may have to send him your clipboard because he's just getting ready to get get started. But heck, my dad and I used to take baseball gloves with us. You know, when we'd go deer hunting when I was a a kid and we'd throw on a log, an old logging road during the middle of the day to to waste the time what you know again two things in my life that stick out is, is memories was baseball and uh, baseball and, and deer hunting so tell us a little bit baseball related on major league and uh, extra innings triple play kind of start with the uh, the first ones and just kind of give us a little rundown on on three of those because those three you, you were on the map but those put you above and beyond that map it seems like yeah, that seems to be the rumor I'm finding out. Um, you know, Major League, and, and and this is a theory that now I've preached because of Major League. Major League, uh, we hunted him for three years. In one year, we never saw him. We had pictures of him, um, but I never saw him. And, you know, if, if you really want to get good at deer hunting, whitetail hunting, I would tell this to anybody now, knowing what he did for me, meaning Major League, is I spent so much time trying to understand him, trying to beat him, trying to understand corridors, uh, picking out trail pictures, reading into trail pictures. Uh, prime example, right? For four years, I've got his history. From the minute he starts to the minute he sheds, he has never broken a tine in that period of time. Never. And so through that process, I'm like, okay, what does that tell me? That tells me that he's not an aggressive deer. He, he is a very passive, he might be big, but he's passive. And so when I got the opportunity to get close to him, I was not going to try to rattle him in. I wasn't going to try to call him. I had to beat him from point A to point B or find out where he's going to go or whatever. But I was not going to call him because I don't, by watching his pictures and cameras, anytime another deer came up, he was the first one to exit. He never stood his ground. And so I'm like, the reason why he's flawless is because his attitude is not not the side of his rack. Now he intimidated a lot of deer when he showed up because he was so big and he was subordinate that a lot of them would stand down. But some of these small guys with big attitudes, bully bucks, he would just he would just turn and walk away. He wouldn't let them push him. He just moved on. 
so we were we were shed hunting the spring the spring of 16 we found his map set in a place we called the pretty woods and uh we found him and i just made a mental note i'm like okay this is interesting uh bullet point and the data points and then the next spring and we didn't see him at all the fall of 16. we had pictures of him but never seen him daylight never saw him and trust me we hunted our butts off after him the spring of 17 we found the same match set 60 yards from the set i found in spring of 16. and, and so i'm like okay this is where he's at late October, mid November, he's coming in this pretty woods and he's not coming out because we had him flanked all the way around this, but we would never see him. He would come out at dark, but he would never daylight. So I'm like, okay, he's hanging out of here due to acorns. He finds his doe, he gets her, he pushes into these, this timber line and he's, he's not coming out. So we hung a set that, that summer, July in the pretty woods and saying, hey, if and when, the pressure's right, the wind's right, this is where we're going to find him. And on November 3rd, we had, this is 17, uh, we had the first high pressure north wind that I felt in a good temp to go in there. Now keep in mind, I've hunted this deer in 15, 14, 15, 16, now it's 17. Didn't see the deer in 16, saw the deer in 15, saw the deer in 14. So we're, we're going on two years and we didn't see this deer on the hoof. Day one, November 3rd, 2017, first time in, I see him on the hoof in two years. I mentally lost it, mentally. He dominated my mind space like I'd never been dominated before. We were sitting and we thought he was gonna come from the north. Sure enough, he came from the north. It was like 8.30 in the morning. And I could see just a ton of bone coming through the timber. And Casey was about five feet above me. We're in, a, we're in tree stands. And I said, can you get on him? Can you see him? And within two seconds, he goes, it's him. And I go, well, what do you mean it's him? He goes, it's him. He couldn't even speak. And I'm like, holy crap. And he's coming right at us. And um, he got through one spot that I didn't have a shot anyway. But mentally, I was not in the game at all. I would love to tell you that I was. Um, I was not. He mentally controlled I literally froze and just stared him walk for about 85 yards. Didn't pick up my bow or nothing. I was just in all of them. And then he got through and then I saw another shot opportunity and then uh, some uh, small thickets were blocking his vitals. So we had to let him go. And I'm like, Casey, I'm okay. We can go home right now. We've seen him. I'm good to go. We've made a season. And so we got, we sat all day. We went in, 45 minutes before dark, left 45 minutes after dark, never came out of the set. That was uh, November 3rd or November 4th. Went in the next day, did not see him. And all these, these so we hunted him the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th. So we had him like five straight days. We all had high pressure and the right wind. So I said, you know what, we're going to keep going after, keep going after. And we did all these sits every single time. And then on November 7th, he came by again and he went down that same path. And at noon, I looked at Casey and I said, it was 61 yards away. I said, at noon, we're going to pull the sets down. We're going to move them 31 yards. And I said, that's the tree right there. I was ranging them from the tree stands because I didn't want to spend a lot of time figuring it out. So we pulled the sets, moved it 31 yards, went back up, set the rest of the day, came back in on the eighth, 
didn't see but two deer the entire day on November the 8th. And I'm like, I looked at Casey, I said, I think we officially blew him out. He's gone. That night I was sitting having dinner and Mark called because he was, he was in the fight as much as I was because he knew what I was doing. He goes, what'd you see? And I said, man, I said, it was not a good day. I saw two deer. And I said, two things happened. Either I blew him out or he's locked down. That's two things. And he goes, well, he goes, I'll go this way. He goes, if you blow him out, you blow him out, but you won't know unless you don't go again. I said, well, I'm riding this hole until the 15th. I said, I'm going back in. So we went back in on the 9th. And sure enough, he got locked down on, because we saw him the morning of the 7th. We did not see him on the 8th. We saw him on the morning of the 9th with a doe, and he was taking his doe from our food plot and pushing her into that timber thicket where we were. And he came due west of us, and we had a north wind, and the rest is history. He, he did exactly what we thought he was doing, is he was finding his does and pushing them into the, to that theater, that Oak Ridge, and that was it. What did he end up scoring, and what age was he, Drake? He was seven and a half, and he went 203. Okay. Was that 2017 on him? Yep, tipped him over in 2017. Now what, yep. you know, I've heard people, when a buck's tines aren't broken, and uh, you know, then they'll say, well, he must, boy, he must be the dominant buck, that nobody wants any part of him. And there's not any, in my limited opinion, there's not any bucks that won't fight another buck. You know, the young ones are gonna test them. So to me, I, do you think that's ever a possibility? Because I agree with you, my thought always is, I think they're submissive which is a reason nothing's broken because they, they're not engaged in anything. And I'm, I agree I'm glad with to hear you. you, I've, hear watched, you say that. I've watched so much white, so many whitetails over the years that the simplest way to break it down is whitetail have personalities like people. Whitetails, I, you know, we've got whitetails that are crazy aggressive. I mean, I call them UFC fighters. I mean, I don't care who steps on the plot. They're going to, they're going to go over there and mess with them. And then you got ones that kind of mess with a little bit of 50%. And then you got, some of them that show up that just move through and have no interest of connecting with any buck. You know, it's a personality thing. Now with extra innings who went 239, he was a little different because when he hit the plot, I've never seen mother nature operate like this, which is he hit the plot and the deer actually moved away from him. It was like parting the red sea. I kid you not. Those and bucks backed up like, Here's the man, he showed up, let's give him his space. I've never seen that happen. Not on that day, and I haven't seen it happen before or after except that one that one afternoon. I haven't seen it since. Very vocal. Was he very vocal? Yeah. Uh, no, he was not vocal at all. But he just, he, he we saw him, we, we found him, we found his sheds in, in uh, 17 spring of 17 when we did a controlled burn on a warm season grass patch found his match set actually and he went plus or minus mid 80s depending on his inside spread but my focus was major league so i just put those off the side and said hey major league's my guy that's who i'm going after and we didn't even really put much sense into it and then when we started getting pictures in in july and august we had this deer that had completely blown up and we got out those match set and i go i think it's him in case like yeah i think it is but i said how can you blow up you know almost basically 50 inches i go this just doesn't you know 50 60 inches i go this doesn't make sense and we just disregarded it and i'll tell you i'll tell you the story when we get to the end when it gets more to make more sense 
And we, that deer, believe it or not, was the most photogenic daylighting deer I've ever hunted, ever. We had done a bunch of timber stand improvement in that part of the farm. We had green, we had grain, we had it all. And I'm like, you know what? He's calling his place home. His core area have shrunk. I'm going to call it plus or minus 60 to 80 acres. And once we found him, we took cameras off of other farms because we were limited on resources and we flanked him. I think we had six cameras around him. We only got him on one. So I'm like, he's not moving much. We're going to wait for the perfect day the perfect wind, the perfect pressure, and that happened to be October 30th. We waited that long. Now, keep in mind, the season opened October 1st, and trust me, I, it was a long 30 days for me to be patient. And we got the right wind and right pressure, and we went in there, and we saw them at uh, about 3.15 or 3.45, dog and a doe, and she dragged them into that timber stand improvement that we had done that, that spring. And I looked at Casey and I said, it's over. I said, she's going to come out here. We've got the grain. We've got the green. He's going to come through this. We had redesigned our food plot. So it's a bottleneck and we're at the bottleneck. So if he goes to one side, you know how deer move. We created some movement. We've got the scrape scrapes in front of us. We had it all laid out. I said, he comes out here. It's he's We're going to have a good chance. So every single doe that came out, man, I was on edge. And finally one came out and she kept looking behind and our food plot was edged with warm season grasses. So until they expose themselves, you can't see them. And she kept looking behind, looking behind. I said, it's gotta be him. And sure enough, when he came out at warm season grasses, that's when every whitetail on that plot moved backwards. And he came out and he looked left, looked right. His doe was eating the clover field, some biologic clover and he went to the nearest scrape tree that was 48 yards away, and he did a show of all shows. I went to D-loop, put the, uh, the release on the D-loop, and as I did that, I was watching the doe, his doe, and she was starting to move. And she was starting to move to our bottleneck, through our bottleneck, which then was going to push her through a uh, bean field on the other side. I'm like, okay, I can shoot him at 48, or I can take the chance that he's going to realize that doe's gone and it's going to drag him through that bottleneck. And so I relaxed, and sure enough, he got done doing a scrape. I think his scrape lasted like 45 seconds, I think, 47 seconds. And he stopped, and he looked around, looked around, didn't see her, and he went on a quick jump. I wouldn't call it a run. I wouldn't call it a walk. I, was, I call it a fast walk. And he turned that corner around that bottleneck. He had to do a hard 90 degrees. And she was feeding about 40 yards from us, 45 from us, in the bottleneck. And she had stopped. He made that hard right turn. Boom. Once he hit that right turn, there she was. And he stopped. And it was 31 yards. The PSC victory found its mark at 31. And I don't, I was speechless, honestly. <laughs> I didn't have much to say. Casey was going nuts. I was going nuts. I think we had a, a bro romance for about two and a half minutes in the blind because we were, I think the only, hey. miss, the only thing missing was us kissing each other, honestly, <laughs> because the emotion that was going through that blind was, could have powered up the state of Iowa. There's so much energy coming out of that thing. And I'm like, do you think we smoked him? And I said, Greg, he said, Greg, you 10 ringed him. He's dead. There's no doubt about it. And um, sure enough, Casey was right. He got out of there and walked 100 yards, and there he was, which is the best part of the story, which I should have told you uh, when I started, was 
I was on the way to the set that night and Mark knew of the deer. And he says, what's your plan tonight? He goes, we're having a big dinner. Uh, Ter Terry's in camp, we wanna have you over. And I said, Mark, I said, don't count me in. I said, plan A is me killing extra innings. I said, plan B will be meeting you for dinner. And he said, I hear you, brother, go get plan A. And I got a, I got a text about 35 minutes after dark. He said, you coming to dinner? And I said, hell no, because I got plan A in the truck. And then my phone rings. And he goes, are you serious? And I said, he's in the truck. And he goes, you better get here right now. Turn that truck around because I want to see this thing. So we went to uh, a Mexican restaurant where they were in Osceola. I told him, I said, I'll be there in 15 minutes. He said, text me when you get to the parking lot. And I don't know, there's probably 12 or 13 people he had up for dinner. And they all came out to the parking lot. And we scored them in the parking lot. And uh, Wade scored them. Casey scored him, Wade's brother, Will, and then Wade's wife, Kyle, was running the math. And they did it a couple times because they, they couldn't believe it, you know? Um, I'm like, what's what's the score? And they did it again. They wouldn't tell me because they want to get it all on film. And finally added up, and they rolled the tape, and they said, let's tell them. And I couldn't believe it. And I, di I didn't know this, but obviously Mark's such a student of the game. Uh, when we're doing the interview and laying down uh, the story, he says, I don't think you realize, Greg, but you just laid down the largest whitetail in DOD history, bow or gun. But more importantly, you, you just laid down the largest whitetail in outdoor tele television history. And I said, I had no idea. He goes, yeah. He goes, you've done something nobody's, able to, nobody's ever done before you. And so to tell you that we celebrated that night is a, probably a pretty understatement. Um, it was a long evening. Let's put it this way. Uh, I ate breakfast before I went to bed because we were up that we saw the break of dawn. Um, so I don't it know was, Mark and Terry like, like, like to celebrate. Oh, yeah. They're, they don't need a reason to celebrate, but if you give them one, they're in. Um, oh, yeah. So it was, it, it was great to share it with that many people. Uh, it was great to have Mark and Terry there and and that whole thing so it was it made it a lot more special that way so it was fun it was a great a memory that i'll never never be forgotten now you you walked up on a 207 inch uh, i guess the year before in major 203 League. 203, 203 to be correct yeah and then uh what, what were your thoughts walking up on extra innings extra. with him being two 238 could you see the difference yeah we we, we had you know the, the crazy he had 27 scoreable points he had 52 inches of mass. So I, you can't, we had so many trail pictures of him. We tried to score him with trail pictures and all that type of thing. But I, I still walk around him today. I did a pedestal mount and I see things that really weren't there the first time. And when I picked him up, I think I said, this deer is a next level deer. I've never seen anything like it. And the more you look at him, the more you're just like, wow. And uh, to go back to what I said about earlier, how he went, you know, did a, you know, if he was 185 and he went to uh, 239 and change, call it 240, you know, that's, you know, 50, 60 inches of, of growth. How'd that happen? I, and and I'll tell you what, what I know, and that is his front right hoof was curled, um, had a really almost like a lady's shoe type of situation where it really curled really high and it was awkward. And talking to a biologist, this is coming, this is his theory, not mine. He believes that that hoof 
took him out of the rut fall of 17. And so he went into the winter being much more healthier and more poundage on his body mass that when he came out in the spring, he didn't have to replenish his body weight. And he said allowed to put all of his growth into his head. Do I know that? Will I ever know that? No. But it sure makes a lot of sense. I haven't had a deer since do that, but it does make a lot of sense. It's logical. And he was very passionate about that answer. So that's one I stuck with. How about uh, triple play? What did he end up? Was that he two went 233 and change. 233. So then you had those back to back, 18 and 19, right? Yep. And then I shot a 194 in Missouri. So it just was, to mix it up a little bit. Just, just to get back to with the common folks. I had, to, I had to prove people that I don't have to be in Iowa to get it done. I was getting too much social media static. So I'm like, all right, I'll prove you guys wrong. We'll go kill something else in another state. So that, yeah, 17, 17 was major league. 18 was extra, extra innings. And then the 194 was, was Missouri and uh, 17 in 19. And then 20 was uh, uh, triple play, which was a 233. Did, did Mark ever tell you he wished he wouldn't have sold you that piece of property? Uh, it's not the one. It's not. I'll be honest with you. The one. The one I've. Uh, I've. You probably know this man, Shad Paul Thorpe. Know the name. He worked with Jay Gregory for a long time. Oh, okay. He was a tall, slender guy, coal black hair. Mm -hmm. Remember him? Yeah. That I. I actually sold the farm that Mark. Mark sold me. I bought Paul. Paul Thornton's old farm. Oh, okay. Yeah, this goes back a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is back when uh, uh, he, he was he was filming. Paul was filming for Jay Gregory, the Wild Outdoors at the time, and then uh, Paul was a I think he was a Mississippi guy. I think so. And he he just got out of it, and I slid into it, and I haven't cut loose of it since. I, I don't blame you there. Yeah. It's my pine box, you know. I'm gonna have to die for it to be passed on. And who knows? Maybe Derek will get it then. I don't know. We'll see how passionate he is about it. Greg, what you know, looking at those, actually, those four, they're including that that 194. Are, are there certain things, or when you look at them collectively, that you came out of those experiences that you learned, or did, or did you learn that those deer all act independently of one another? There's nothing really that connects them or the success you had or, or are there certain things that just stick out that uh, they're, they're all different sense? i mean we shot major league on november the 9th we shot extra innings on october 30th and we shot triple play on uh october 1st so they're all different times of the year um it goes back to studying the deer studying the patterns you know pro probably what's what's so neat about uh triple play is we killed him October 1st, which is opening day of Iowa bow season. And he was living in a part of the farm. And when I say dead metal, I'm talking dead metal. You, you drop a pin, uh, dead middle of our farm. It is truly dead metal, north, south, east, and west. And I was like, he is living in the most perfect spot that it's going to be tough to kill him. And we were just watching him, obviously, with trail cameras. And we were coming back from out west. I think we had a 16 or 18-hour drive home. And we were studying him, how we're going to kill him. And it boiled down to he was coming to a bean field that not had turned brown yet. So all of our other 
uh, grain fields on our farm had turned to brown. They haven't been harvested yet. Turned to brown, and this was the last one that was pseudo brown, pseudo green. It hadn't quite turned to brown yet, and there was a lot of a lot of deer going there, and he was one of them. And if you remember back to 2020, October 1st, we had about a 23 or 24 degree drop in temp. We had a cold front of all cold fronts. And I looked at Casey and I said, you know what? If, if this isn't the time to do it, we know he's there. He's going to those bean fields. We only have probably less than a handful of days before they turn all to brown and then they're gonna shift to a different food source. So we're gonna have to find him again. We've got a 23, 25 degree drop in temp. The cold fronts here, we've got high pressure. Um, we're going to have to blow about 25 to 35% of farm up to get to them on our way out. On the way in, we've got we to gotta walk across a huge bean field. And we figured out that if we could take that bean field, hit the creek, walk the creek roughly half mile, about a half mile through the creek, that'll take us right to our set. So we did that. I said, we're either going to go all in and kill them, or when we come out of that set, we're going to blow an atomic bomb to our farm. But I said, if we don't do it now, when are we going to do it? And so we just started stacking up all the bullet points to our favor. And I said, we might as well go all, go all in right now and let's see if we can do it. And that, I've never seen October 1st ever since I've hunted with the deer movement like that. And it was all because of that cold front and high pressure. I mean, we saw a 145 inch deer at 245 and it was nonstop. I think every animal was on their feet that night. It just, it was perfect. And he had, um, he came out and uh, we had, we had pulled the cameras right when we got back from out west and we went and pulled the cameras. We actually took a tractor with a mower um, and we used that and we mowed trails out of where he thought he was bedding and mowed a trail through a, a tall grass that edge line the beans right in front of our blind. In front of that blind, we had a scrape tree. And believe it or not, he, he walked that trail step for step. And I think two things happened. One, we had mowed the trail. Two, there was four or five other mature bucks already out there and he wanted to get downwind of those other bucks and for him to get downwind of them he had to get um basically right in front of our blind so i think it was a combination of us making the right move by mowing a trail uh, making easy access because deer are extremely lazy um but also i think it has to do with those deer also being out in the field because he wanted to get downwind of them and for him to do that was going to put him at 22 yards in front of us and that's what happened. Yeah, Greg, there's no doubt in my mind, I mean, killing the, those size deer that you killed, that it wouldn't have happened. And again, I know, and I'm sure you mentioned earlier about you had to go back to Missouri to kill enough so people, because social media, I'm sure the things they say, I can only imagine, well, anybody could kill one in Iowa, you know, all those kind of type, right. of, type of things. But uh, I'm 100% confident. Uh, yes, you got to hunt where the big deer are, but you created these opportunities for yourself by the way you set your farms up and so tell us a little bit about when you get a new property or just the properties that you have what are the things and, and you just mentioned it a little bit there like with your trail where you're basically manipulating deer getting deer to go where you want them to go but take up you know the piece of properties that you have and 
what things have you done to them? And I'm sure neighbors are part of it as well and, and having a relationship with them, but what all things do you do to, to try to put yourself in a situation and the deer in a situation where you can have success and where they have the growth and achieve the potential they have? You know, the, the, the work, if, if you really want to be, and I, I can, you know, being a coach, uh, I coached traveling baseball for a lot of years too at, a, at, a, at the highest level. And one thing I've known of dealing with really good, talented people, you may have talent, but if you don't work at it, it's really a waste. And I, I knew the farm had genetics. Uh, matter of fact, uh, the previous owner never killed a, big, a, a deer bigger than mid-70s. I just knew that if I put the work in uh, off season, um, I had to start, I guess, checking boxes on, on eliminating factors, right? Which is, I haven't done it yet, so, so what if? What if I do this? What if I don't? I wanna say, what if it would? And so I just started checking the boxes, which is warm season grasses, timber stand improvement, have year round food, make sure that there was grain to last them all the way through March and April, make sure there's plenty of biologic clover sitting around so that it's the first thing to green up that's going to give you 18 to 22 percent protein day one because clover is the first thing to green up so you know i made sure that i was providing everything i could tipping over trees maybe they had, they had woody brows so they i gave every reason for a deer not to leave and when i got to that point with these farms to say hey if i was a deer and i walk in here i've got no reason to leave that's when things changed and that's a mantra that we've now duplicated in Missouri and it's working down there. And we've got other, other farms we're working on now and it's quickly changing as well, which is it truly depends on what you want to do and it takes time. You're not going to change it overnight, but age structure is a big thing. You know, uh, we, we've let a lot of deer go this year that probably, I'm fairly certain most people would probably shoot. But you can't shoot a 165, 175, 180 class deer if you want to shoot a 190 or 200. It's just the way it is. And you got to have the discipline to do that. But you got to have the age structure. And it takes, well, prime example, I bought the Missouri farm. I didn't hunt it for three years. We didn't have the age structure. We didn't have the quality of deer and we didn't have the habitat. So we did food plots. We did all the whole lot of, whole lot of everything from conservation to habitat to create that to then start creating an age structure. And that was the hard three years to just basically put food, work it like you're gonna hunt it, but never hunt it. And we did that for three years and now it's paying off. If you were gonna go out and buy a property or just speaking to people to give them advice on a property to, that you would look for, what would you look for in going to buy a property from the, the percentage of timber you have versus you know, the, the ag part, uh, you're looking for a property on a dead end road with all those type of things. What, what is it that you're looking for if you're looking at a, at, at a map or a topographical map on trying to find that perfect piece of property you'd like to buy? The biggest thing, well, I, everybody's different. So I'll, I'll say that, you know, it's really hard. An income farm and a whitetail farm will, will never be a whitetail farm. You have to make a decision of what you're going to do. If you really want a whitetail farm income, Rental income's got to be secondary. A big tillable piece is just not going to provide it. So if, if I had to say, you know, a 60-40 split, a 50-50 split between timber and, and ground that I can change, um, because you can't grow timber in our lifetime. 
right? You either have it or, or you got to go find another farm because you're not going to create that type of timber. So, but I, I sure can, I sure can create uh, warm season grasses on hillsides, south facing slopes. I can sure if I don't have timber, I can't do timber stand improvement and TSI work to, to give them that, that, that uh, woody browse, you know, all season long because deer are browsers. They don't gorge on grain all the time or food plots. They, they're always grazing. So you got to give them everything they want. So you want to have a mixture, but you want to have enough open country that allows you to put the plots where you want to put them, allow you to, to dictate your access points with warm season grasses and manipulate the deer where you want to put them based on the wind direction and your access points and then work your timber stand improvement and bedding sections based around your access and your food plot so that you're feeding them forward. And so if you can hunt deer that never know they're hunted, you've won the game. And I think that's the part that people don't maybe put value into as much is our number one goal is to get in and get out, hunt them without them ever know we were even there. And yes, I know I'm saying a lot, I get that, but that is our goal. And we do everything in our power to do that. You plant like a lot of tall, like an Egyptian weed or food plot. We've done that absolutely to... for access points. Yes. You bet we have. Yeah, for sure. You bet we do control burns. We have our farm set up in three corridors. We burn one third of it one year, the next, the next, then recycle it. So we always have different growths throughout the different farms. So we always giving them something else to eat. You know, it's it, it's you really have to think of whitetail hunting not between. Whether your open season is September 15th, if you're Missouri or Iowa or, or Wisconsin, September 15th or Iowa's October 1st, you know, through mid-January, you got to start thinking of it in the off-season. If you're not doing the off-season work, you're really not progressing in your game to chase the deer that you want to chase. And obviously, age structure is a big part of this. You know, a 200-inch deer is not going to be a two-year-old, you know. You really see big jumps between five and six and six to seven. I see good jumps from four to five, but the more I study them, I really like five to six to six to seven. At Casey shot, true story, uh, he just did it this fall. Casey shot 165 inch eight point, legitimate, clean, clean eight, 165. And it, we have documentation without a shadow of a doubt, 100% he's eight and a half years old. My best guess based on history I believe he's nine and a half years old. That's nuts. Rick, tell us, you mentioned earlier about putting cameras on, on one of those big 200s and trying to find out, I only got him on one camera. What is your camera usage? Uh, how do you set your cameras up? How many cameras uh, do you typically try to put up on, on a farm? Do you, are you a sale camera? We, we do a mixture of everything, you know. Um, ex, you know, cameras are not cheap. Cell plans are not cheap, um, so we try to, try to maximize those things and depending on the deer that we're finding you know i'm usually chasing one no more than two per year i focus my attention on and then we will steal resources and put it around them to try to educate ourselves we don't we will glass them afar um, but we don't we don't penetrate let them be deer and the more you more the more comfortable they are, the more they act like deer. And the more they act like deer, the more daylight they're going to be, the more daylight they are, the more chance you have to kill them. And that's why we try to hunt less and kill more, because the more times you go in there when things are not in your favor, when I'm saying wind direction, pressure, all those things that we're talking about, you're only educating the herd. 
and the more you educate them, you are your enemy in that situation. You're, you're depressing deer movement in daylight hours and you can't kill them in the dark. So we really try to be patient and wait until it's in our favor uh, before we go. Do you log your dad? I've heard Mark, I think, say that he really uses his cameras for the next season. If you're using them for this season, you're you're already behind. It's already happened. Do you? Is there certain data that you you collect from those that you use the next year? And if so, you know how do you how do you organize that? Yeah, there there was a deer that we we had chased, and then he he disappeared. I don't know what happened to him, or he died, and we never heard about it. But um, he would always show up, plus or minus about the 20th of October, and every year for three years. I kid you not, it would be the 18th, 19th, or 20th, he would show up, and he would be around for about a week or 10 days, and he would disappear, and he was a giant. And so we waited for him a couple of years to find him, and he showed up. Uh, we couldn't get on him, um, and then he would disappear. And then the next, we did it for, I think, two or three years in a row. And then I don't know if he got killed or EHD or coyotes or whatever. So if you start tracking deer, you will find deer. Like there's one of my Iowa farms, um, well, the Iowa farm, I know that come November 8th or 9th is when it's locked down on my farm. I've just been there so long and documented so much that if I don't have my deer killed by that time, I know I'm pushing against lockdown because it seems like that's when those does start really and those big bucks get locked down is that 8th or 9th. Major League proved it on the 8th. Shot him on the 9th, but he was locked down on the 8th. And we've seen that over and over and over. So we, we hunt farms based around that. Uh, once we have those data points, we focus on certain deer before or after that. And obviously once they start locking down, you got to give it another, you know, five, six, seven days, a week or 10 days, and then they're going to release. And then you go back at them again. But another thing that we should probably talk about is playing hunting deer based on personalities. I shot a deer we called wide load couple years ago, well, the same year it'd be, that would have been 2017, 18, 19, 2019, I shot the 194 in Iowa and I shot a 175 in, or 194 in Missouri, 175 in Iowa. I shot him over a decoy and we, we used, uh, we went in there three or four days. Uh, it was about five or six days prior to that, the day we killed him. And he was just pushing everything off. I mean, just super aggressive. And I looked at Casey and I said, the next time we come in here for the right wind, we're going to bring that decoy and um, the setup was perfect because we put up on this ridge and this knoll and it was a bottleneck and the bottleneck was I'm going to call it 50 plus yards wide and uh, it had a draw that went all the way up the hill and then it opened up to a, a grain field and that grain field was roughly I'm going to call it 350 yards away from our setup and that deer was so wide uh, when he hit the plot roughly 350 yards away up on the greenfield, I pulled up my binocs and I said, it's got to be him. He's so wide, I can't make him out, but it's got to be him. And he stood up there and you could see him looking down the chute. And he's there's no way he could not see our decoy because he's dead center. The minute he had enough of it, I did not make a sound. I did not grunt. I did not do anything. He did not quit for 350 yards until he got to the scrape in front of that decoy. And I shot him a 31. I didn't let him get to the decoy. But he, I played to his personality, right? Which is, hey, I don't know who that buck is. He's not supposed to be here. It's time for me to introduce myself, and I'm going to go over there. And his personality killed him. And we, Casey's, same thing, decoy, 171 this fall, killed him over a decoy. 
our food plot was about 175 yards long by probably 65 wide and we're on the southwest corner the deer came from the far yeah we're in the southwest corner he came from the far east side he hit the plot stood there he looked saw the decoy and did not quit step for step until he got to 35 yards and that's when the matthews victory introduced him to the <laughs> iowa bow tag you know, <laughs> it, the, the decoy to me, uh, I listened to a few, a few of your podcasts since we've connected and somebody, I think you asked the question, what's your number one tool, uh, to take in the woods and from the 25th, 23rd, 24th of October through, I'm going to call it the 17th, 18th, 19th November, I'm pretty good at ranging. So I would say my decoy, I, I, it's in my truck that month that period of three, three and a half weeks, it's in my truck every single day. Depending on where we go and what setup, we'll dictate if we're gonna take it, but we have killed a ton of deer behind decoys, a ton of them. Because mm -hmm. it takes all the all the attention off of you onto the decoy. You can get away with so much because they're so focused and so, so in tune to that thing that they just cannot help themselves. Yeah, I noticed over the years that you that you had used that quite, a, used a decoy quite a bit. and. I would assume, like with Major League, who was fairly submissive, and again, knowing that person, I wasn't going to use it with yeah, him because they would have pushed him away. If yeah. you if you had any adverse conditions, uh, has the has the decoy ever hurt you at all? As far as you know, a buck coming in or spook deer in general, what what other experiences have you have you had with them? I've had both. I, I've had one deer that came in within. 60 70 yards of them and just stood there and stared at them and moved on i killed the same deer five days later in the same spot because of the decoy his mood changed yeah you know a lot of it sometimes right place right time luck but a lot of it is the mood and and where they are and what they're doing and what else is around them when he came out the first time there was no does out there. There wasn't any, there were just all small bucks and he was 171 class. Well, yeah, he went 171 and changed to 172 Missouri buck. And it was big open biologic brassica field, uh, maximum actually, to be honest. And um, he he came out, hit the ridge. It was a kind of a knoll, came over the knoll and there was a bunch of does around the decoy, probably 20, 30 yards away. And he wanted no part of it. And he's like, nope, those does are mine. I'm coming for you, dude. And he got with, I don't know, 28 yards away. And that was this, that was it. We killed, we killed two deer over the decoy in three days. John Williams, Shed, you know, uh, John Williams, yeah. Shed? John Williams was behind the camera for both of them. A 174 in Iowa and a 171 in Missouri. The same year, three days apart behind a decoy. John Williams looked at me and says, I've never seen this. I've never done this. I think you're crazy. But he said, I'm going home and I'm ordering me a decoy and I'm calling you up and how we're going to do this. And every year he calls me and we talk about tactics and ideas and how he's going to be successful. Do you have some key points, Greg, that as far as if somebody using a decoy that, that you would tell them, hey, here, here's some kind of rules you need to go by or, or things that you need to be aware of and do? My, this is all through experiences and, and my experiences will give you my opinion and I'm not saying they're right or wrong. So don't blow up my Instagram page. So you've lost my mind, but, <laughs> um, this is, and me and Pete Shepley have a strong disagreement on this. So this is kind of interesting, but I like my decoy 18 to 22 yards for my, for my setup. And 
I also like them quartering to me. I, I've used those in the past. I don't have much success with them. I've had 10 times more success with bucks, um, a buck decoy. And the reason I want 18 to 22 yards from my setup is there I've killed a lot of them that they may not commit to the decoy. When I say commit, I'm talking get within feet of them. But they will more often than not check them out. Now, they may hung up about 70, they may hung up about 60 or whatever, but a lot of them hang up about 10 to 20 yards from that decoy. So let's just call it easy math and call it 20 yards. So if they hang out at 10 or 15 yards from that decoy, that puts me at 35. He's still in my kill zone, right? But if I set that, Pete Shepley, he thinks I'm crazy. He says, you got to put them at 30. And I said, well, Pete, if they hang out, they're at 45 or 50. Now it's getting to be a poke, especially on a whitetail. So I like that 18 to 22. And then another trick that I've learned over the years is, you know, we only use decoys in open fields, right, where they can see a lot. I don't take them to timber. And when I go to set them up, I will actually squat and put my eyes level with the decoy's eyes, and I will scan that field left to right to see what they see. So if I know the deer are coming from the northwest corner or whatever it is, and they can't see it because I'm squatting down now and I can see what they see, I will move that deer plus or minus X number of yards so that when they hit that section where I think they're coming from, they're going to see them and they're going to come right in. Because if they don't see them, they don't see them. So I make sure I make those adjustments. And I, I take my rangefinder with me and I'll shoot my setup from there to make sure what my distance is and, when and you, then when do you ahead. start greg end of october is that when you you start using yeah i'll start using week? it you know uh that 23rd 24th somewhere around there you know i've never used it earlier than the 20th it all dictates on weather you know that 20th to 24th is usually when we really start getting after it. and it's not because i want to it's because that's when the weather really changes and it gets colder you know, I don't, I don't hunt when it's hot. I just leave it alone. Deer don't move much and I don't like burning spots. I just save them for better opportunities. So come that 21st, 23rd, 24th is when that decoy is going to be in the back of the truck every single day and it's ready to go. You, you mentioned earlier, uh, all day sits. Do you kind of that same time period when it comes, you know, that 20, 20th or so of October, do you, is that when you start your all day sits? And you do that through the rut and a little beyond, or you pick your spots with that? The only time we'll do all day sits is when it's in the timber. When I, when I know that I'm penetrating a spot that I know is going to allow movement, you know, that could, could create movement between that 10 a.m. and 2, 2 p.m. hour. And that late October, you know, early November timeline, you can have that, that time of movement. And plus, when you go pen, penetrating that wood section, I don't like laying my scent. So we'll go in there half hour, 45 minutes before daylight, and we'll leave half hour, 45 minutes after dark, and we'll try to minimize as much as we can getting out. So if we're going to the timber, we're sitting all day. I'm not coming out. I just don't like the intrusion. Shed, I've been monopolizing most of Greg's time here. You got uh, some questions you, you want to throw at him? I just... It, it, just let me know if you need somebody to shoot one of them 200 inch deer for you. Yeah. <laughs> the list is long, Shed. The list is long. <laughs> Shed's, Man, always, Shed's you, always willing to help out and lend a hand if, if I needed. Can, I can always help. You know, yeah. Greg, I, I, I'm not quite sure. You'll know. I'm not quite sure if it was Major League, if it was 
triple player extra innings, but you were in a tree stand on this hunt and just your reaction after it, well, you you had to be close to falling out of the tree. You know, just the, oh, mo- the emotions and, you know, we've all been yeah. there with that, but that was one of the most genuine. Yeah. It was good to see that. And uh, I'm sure that you, no matter a lot of times what that animal is, you, you still feel that. Take us through that moment as far as just the emotions, kind of what, what got you there. Well, I, th- I think the harder the suck, the better the memory. Because yeah. the, be- the deeper the burn and the deeper it is, if it comes easy, it just doesn't mean as much. And me chasing that deer, you know, knowing him for four, chasing him for three, and not seeing him for 24 months, uh, it, it, I can't tell you the amount of work and effort and planning and, and picking stuff apart and trying to figure it all out. It would it drove my wife nuts. I mean, it's all I thought about. And my first shot on him, uh, it's all it's on YouTube, so you can go look it up. So I can't lie about it. So <laughs> it was a clean miss um, at 31 yards. And was it a miss? It was a miss, but that's where I put the arrow. And here's one of my best lessons that I would be happy to tell because I wish I would have known this at the time. I was convinced he was going to jump the arrow. And I put it just underneath, right at the crease, at his belly, right underneath his heart, thinking he's going to drop right into it. He, he didn't, didn't move. Did I, I, no, he did not move. And the reason why he did not move is because we were in the timber, and the wind speed was, I think it was 13 to 14 miles an hour that morning. And, and when you're in oak oak timber, those oak leaves are still on there. And in that wind speed, it's it's quite loud, and it covers a lot of a lot of sound that's what cover i didn't know this at the time this all came to me after me i watched the, the video over and over and over and over and over trying to break down what happened and when you listen to it you can hear the rustle of the leaves which then masked that arrow coming at him so he never moved he reacted to the leaves underneath him that the arrow hit and then that doe that he had had locked down with was only I'll call it, you know, 10, 12 yards away. And he moved closer to her and I grabbed my next arrow and you can see my facial expression. I was so mad at myself and I bared down and then zipped him. And then he ran, uh, well, it was 47 or 48 yards away. And it was a, it was a Y of a tree. And the only thing I could see was the back third of his, of his, uh, right in front of his hip. That's all I could see. And I'm like, you know what? I've got an arrow in him. It's my duty to try to put another in him. If I can, it's my obligation. And I ripped back and I never aimed so hard for so long. And I threw that arrow at 47, 48 yards between a six inch window of a gape of a tree of a Y. And it went right up through him, quartering, quartering away right up into him. And he ran off and obviously he died. But when that all came down and Casey, after we he tracked him and we lost him, I we, we both lost it. He was shaking bad. I was shaking bad. I had to grab the tree. I knocked my quiver out of the tree, um, which is not on film. I was shaking so bad. I I I couldn't get a hold of myself. I was I was concerned we had a potential of falling out of the tree, and so I literally hugged the tree until for about oh I think it was six or seven minutes. I could not control myself. The adrenaline was so bad. And uh, then the highs and lows, things, the adrenaline starts calming down, then emotions come over. You don't see this on camera, but man, 
I cried like some a six-year-old girl stole his lunch pail. <laughs> I was that much of a wreck of, of tears of joy, right? Because yeah. it just, to put that much work into something and actually happen, it's one thing to kill him with a gun. It's another thing to do with a bow. Mm-hmm. It, and it I was just so, so excited that we actually did it, that it's, it's probably my biggest, mo- that deer taught me more of my career than ever. And that's what he, he's put me in this position because he forced me to learn and study deer and movements and, and thickets and thoroughways and shed hunting and, and connecting the dots. I've said this now, if I would have known that, 15, 20 years ago, I would have been better today than I ever been. Because if you can truly, I, I tell people say, Hey, give me one thing of advice. I say, you know what? If it's one deer, if it's 115 inch or 180 inch, I don't care. I don't care the age. Just pick one deer in your farm one and say, I'm only going to kill him this year and study the heck out of him. And he will teach you everything you need to know. Just don't, don't pick up the bow unless it's him. And it may take you two or three years. But let me tell you, you will come out of this situation 10 times better as a hunter than you went into it. And that's what he gave me. And I, I without him, I wouldn't be where, where I am today. That's some good advice. I, ha- I haven't thought about that in that aspect as far as helping other people. But I, I think you're correct with that. If they study study one, they would figure out a lot as it goes into their, to their deer hunting, regardless of, of the size of that deer. With you in that moment of truth and and with what you've experienced different than, than, than a lot of folks. So it's gotta be difficult when you know, I mean, you're hunting that one deer and you know he's in the 200s or close or regardless, he's awful big. What do you do in that moment of, of truth? Is there a certain routine that you go through? Is it just the habit of the practice you do? Uh, or is there things that you're saying to yourself? How do you prepare for that shot? Or you just rely on your, on your instinct and your practice? I am lucky that I saw him the first time I went in on November 3rd or 4th, that first time I went into the timber and I saw him because mentally I was not prepared to be there. I had no idea what it was going to do to my mindset. And I'm glad I got X number of days to settle in and see the footage of him and see him a second time and let it sink in and so forth. But since then, I've studied a lot of the mental game and I go back to a college baseball coach that I had and he told me one thing that stuck me forever. He said, under pressure, if you are prepared through practice and proper preparation, your muscle memory will take over when your mind doesn't. But the only way to be there is if you put the time in. And ever since he's told me that, I've I put the time in behind the bow that I know I've done everything I can. I've put the practice in and I'm confident that once I release it, it's going to go where I want to put it. And bow hunting is more mental than physical. I mean, I've met a lot of guys and and a lot of, I don't need to name names, but a lot of guys that we we don't see on, on film, you only see the kills, you don't see the misses, but you know, we talk about the misses and a lot of it's mental. It's nothing more than that. You know, yes, you torqued the bow. Yes, you didn't line your peep. Yes, you didn't do whatever. But that's mental. That's not physical. Mm-hmm. You didn't go through your your process, and you know, trying to slow things down. If you look at the extra inning, I think I was at full draw. I think it was five or six seconds. I was at full draw. People think you have to draw and shoot. Deer do 
they don't really want to move unless they're forced to move, right? If they're comfortable, they're fine where they're at unless you give them a reason to do it. So you have more time to execute the shot than you realize. Now, I'm not talking 15 minutes. I'm talking instead of drawing anchor and go, I'm saying draw anchor or settle, give yourself, you know, two or three seconds to make sure you've got what you've got, then let it go. People just rush a lot of things when you have the time to do it. And that's why we try to manipulate whitetails and try to kill them or hunt them while they're being deer. I don't, I don't like calling deer. Um, I, I will call them if they're upwind of me or rattle to them. If, if that's the deer I'm chasing, I will never blind rattle never because one, there's more chance you're going to catch one downwind of you. You're going to educate them. Or two, the other thing is when they come in to you, they're full of alert. They know you're there. I mean, how often when you grunt or rattle, they come within less than five yards of your location. It happens all the time. Well, they're looking and you, you don't have the advantage. Prime example, uh, uh, triple play. Uh, he came in, he was walking. I shot him walking. And you can see the video, so, you know, might as well tell the truth. He was walking. And I got blown up on my Instagram page of why did I not stop him? And I'll tell you why, which is probably 18, 18 years ago, 20 years ago, I was in Wisconsin, and I had stopped a deer, a 160-class deer at 10 yards, grunted at him. And he actually came out of his skin. I don't know if that deer stopped running to this day. I have no idea, but he left the county. And that's happened to me twice at very close range. And so I said, for now, I'm never gonna do it unless I really, really have to. And I felt confident in my skill sets that he was walking, he wasn't running. And all the years with me shooting clay pigeons and pheasants and all that stuff on moving animals, as long as you keep your bow moving and not stop, I just treated it like a shotgun and I couldn't have walked up and touched him better at 21 or 22 yards. And I shot him moving and people said I should have stopped him. One thing's for certain, he's in the back of my truck. Um, you know, so it's always can, nice to have helpers out there though, that you have good advice, you know, that what would work. But, for you. but you have, but see, here's the part that people, you gotta, you have to realize you have seconds to think nanoseconds yeah. to process. Oh, yeah to figure out what you're gonna do, how you're gonna do it. And if you don't, your winter opportunity disappears. Mm -hmm. And so I felt confident in my, in my ability that I said, you know, and I was going back to my history, if I run at this deer so close, there's a good chance he's gonna run from here to who knows where. And I'm like, at 21 yards, if I can't pinwheel this deal, then I shouldn't be here. You know, and a lot of time I think what happens too, when you grunt sometimes too at that close, with your mouth, which I, you know, I, I try to do some, but I, I have done it soft where I've spooked and they took over like yours, run out of the county. And I thought, I'll never do that again. You know, and I think sometimes we probably, you're excited just like with your shot. Again, uh, the practicing, you know, you can, you know, when you practice that left hand, if you're a right-handed shooter, you know, is relaxed and it's, you know, got your hand open. Well, what do we do? We, we grip it tight, you know, we're torquing that bow and we don't, I don't know why I missed, you know, I took a good shot. Well, you know, we're tense. And so sometimes I think the same thing with the grunting, you know, you grunt louder than you think you did. And that, that's something that surprised them. It doesn't sound as, as natural. And then you, you blow a great opportunity. Here, here's a great example of that. That 194 in Missouri, 
he came out on the plot and I thought for sure he was going to stop. He wouldn't stop. Now he's at 40. He wouldn't stop. He's at 45. He wouldn't stop. And I'm like, crap, this is it. I grunted at him. He went from not knowing where we were to know exactly where we were, stopped, turned his head, and he's dialed in on us. And he's at 49 yards. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be tough. And so I had to make a split-second decision. Do I put the pin center mass or do I put the, the pin on his belly? I put the pin underneath his belly because he was at 50 yards. He was looking right at me. It was dead calm. And I thought, there is no way, no how he's not jumping this arrow. He's going to jump. And that deer moved 18 inches. He dropped. So if I don't put it under him, yeah. I go over him. And that deer, I center masked him by putting it under him. So if I don't make that decision, I go over him. So you got to read the deer at the time, and I know you only have seconds to do it. But without me making that decision, that 194 never makes it to my wall. Hmm. A couple of questions here for you at the end. But uh, is, if there was one day that you pick, your, your favorite day, you know, I know I've heard – you know, Bill Winky, I think November 7th is his. Uh, heard, you know, Barry Winslow kind of give a, a range. Uh, I think Mark's maybe the 5th through the 9th are his days. What are mm. what, what is your day or days that uh, if you couldn't hunt all year, what day what, what day or days are you going to be out there? The, the more when – I, when I first met Mark, he was always the 5th through the 9th, and I actually took my vacation around those days. And the, the one thing about the Drew Outdoors page, and, and I encourage anybody to do this um, – Probably uh, six or seven years ago, I went through the journal. It's 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 a it's a tab on our on the Drew Outdoors webpage, and you can just hit journal, and then it'll sort all the kills for that year, and it'll go through the stories, the dates, the scores, who shot them, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You will see a massive trend in the last seven eight years. How many more deer are are being tipped over between the 25th and the 31st of October? That cycle used to be the fifth through the ninth. Now, why is that? Is that because we're getting smarter because we're having better tools? I think that's true. I think it also is that a lot of these mature bucks really weren't getting hunted much until that fifth through the ninth. And unfortunately, they could be in lockdown. It's possible. Most of them don't lock down until that seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth. But they're, they're really cruising on their feet that last five or six days of October. And so they're not locked down. They're, they're visible. And so once we started hunting those days, our kill ratio has gone up as the team. The data points are there. I'm not sharing anything that's not already there. But so I would say a decade ago, I would have said the fifth through the ninth. Now, I would probably tell you the 27th through the third, somewhere around there is what I would say. Well, I'm 100% confident we could duplicate, not from my end, from a knowledge standpoint, but from a conversation standpoint, could keep you here till four in the morning like you did on your first meeting with Mark. I, I could listen to you all, all night and take notes here uh, all night long. I'm gonna let Shed ask you, uh, because I know the answer, I think, to your, your, favorite, uh, your favorite musical band or group or uh, artist. <laughs> Shed, you want? I want you to ask it. Shed, say, Shed, ask him who his favorite musical artist is, or band, or group, or. Do you, well, do you know this? Do, you know, because what is it? Twenty-three questions. 
Yeah, well, so, you know, what is your go-to music if you're going, say you're going hunting, your top three? I don't, I don't listen, uh, I don't listen to music going to the set because Casey and I are really students of the game. And, you know, I, 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 I you, you guys haven't asked, so I'm going to tell you, you know, one thing I've learned a long time ago in life is if somebody's very successful at something, I don't care what it is, you don't do it alone. And if you do, you're probably not being honest with yourself. And Casey's been a, has been a big part of this ride, and he's a big part of the win. And he's, uh, I don't call this an I, I call this a we, because he, he does a lot of work and we strategize together. And anytime you go into a situation, you come out 10 times better when you got two minds instead of one. You may walk in with one idea or thought, but you're going to come out completely different when you put two. And honestly, Shed, the reason why I said yes to Mark, I said yes after the first five or six days of filming. And then it's one reason why, which was, and you may know this guy, Adam Keith. Does that ring a bell with you? He started mm -hmm. Landon Legacy. He used to work with Grant Woods. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Adam Keith was my first camera guy. He was in college when this happened. Okay. And he, he came up and we filmed. We shot a 154, I believe, or 155. And that first night was the first time I had a camera guy. First night I ever had a, a guy in the tree with me. And I sat at the dinner table and all of a sudden it became... It wasn't I think my entire bow hunting career and now all of a sudden it shifted to a wee thing and me and a baseball guy and a team guy and all about the the, the bro the bromance, <laughs> I just fell in love with that. That now there's two guys that have a vicious interest of being successful. He wanted to win and tip one over just as much as I did. And we would talk and come up with strategies. And that's the great thing about filming. Filming's great. Yeah, it's fun, it's it's all those things. But honestly, I enjoy having the camaraderie around two guys trying to figure out how to do this. And, you know, Mark uses Terry, Terry uses Mark, you know, everybody's got that other guy, they're bouncing stuff off. But, um, I, I don't think I answered your question. Sorry. Shay. What, what the heck was your question? Was no, your question was what the music or something? I, I don't listen to much. I, I'm a big country guy. I love all country. But if you said pick one band, I, I got to go with ACDC. Don't cry, Shed. Don't cry. That's his favorite too, Greg. Yeah. I am I am just a mega ACDC fan. I just can't get enough of them. Shed likes to walk die. in alone with the with the song Thunderstruck, just playing in his head, you know. Oh, I, I, amen, brother. Amen. It's my favorite. I act, Shed, if we have, ever have the pleasure of meeting face-to-face, -face, you tell me to bring the DVD and I will bring it. About... 14 years ago, I'm shooting at the hip. You know what? I've got it in my closet. I'm going to, I'm going to show you this because this is, cool. give me one second. You won't believe this yet. I actually put this in my, my bag today to come down here to leave it here because this is how important it is to me to watch. This is, and I show you. The 2008 Shoot the Thrill Awards. Do you remember those awards? You've been around a long oh, yeah. time. Okay. Yeah. This is Thunderstruck. <laughs> There's about, I don't know, I'm going to call it well over 85 kills all done to one take of Thunderstruck. There's only, I believe I only have the one copy. I don't know if there's another one. That I might plays. have been. They, they played that at the group meeting, didn't they? They did. 
I might have been there that year. Yeah, you guys are you guys are well blood brothers. You guys, you guys were giving out the Masio uh, Biologic. It, it was a golden or bronze antler on a, yeah. on a pedestal. Yeah. If you remember that, and that whole clip of Thunderstruck is on that disc. And let me tell you, if that does not get your juices rolling after about five <laughs> minutes of watching it, I tell you what, the sport ain't for you. You know, to semi-quote the movie Step Brothers, I think you guys just became best friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she, we, we, we actually hunted a few spots. Um, you, you've been out to Dave Garrett's place with John O'Dell yeah. elk hunting. And I, I followed that. Yeah, you killed the giant. You dang right you did. Yeah. That I've been the out same, there. Like when you were talking about muscle memory taking over, and you can ask John, you know, after we had an idea how big the bull was. I he think, was big. Uh, Wasn't he 355 was, or 360 or something like that? Oh, uh, he was 378. Oh, geez, bigger than I remember. And, but Dave said he was over 400. Well, just, you know, a 380 bull you know, 20 inches, that's yeah. not far off. I mean, that far away, you got to give him credit. At 380, <laughs> does it matter? You know, does it matter? Yeah. But so he the, the he comes in, I shoot him, and John's like, did you hit him? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, well, how far was it? I don't know. And he was like, I think you hit him. I'm like, I got no idea. I just, <laughs> but it's just that muscle memory that clicked right in. And I, of course, I pin, pinwheeled him, but I of course, just, of course he did, Greg. I got lucky, <laughs> but he only went like eighty yards. But I don't remember where he was. This, it just all went blank and into that muscle memory. That's the great thing about okay. hunting. When, when you yeah. go back and you ask anybody the moment, nobody can remember it because yeah. our mind is just—it goes blank. I, Casey, when he's behind the bow and I'm behind the camera, vice versa. I'm like, I didn't do that. He goes, Yeah, you did. I didn't know. He goes, well, I can roll back the camera if you want to see it. You know, I'm like, they, the camera don't lie and you just don't remember. And yeah. you think you did or you didn't do, but you're never right because you're honestly blank out. It's crazy it's how it works. In, in the zone, as they say, like another baseball term, sports term there, you know, you're in that zone. It is. And if you're not, it, it's tough to execute because those deer mentally put us in states of minds that we can't get to any other time of the year. And when you think about it, you know, life, life gives us a lot of second chances, but bow hunting doesn't. You get one arrow and you typically one arrow will make a great season or a bad season. And you can't, you can't sit there and, and do it again. And that's what's so special about it, but that's what's so hard about it. Now, Greg is, is a hardcore whitetail person when you decided that you were going to go out west and go mule deer hunting or elk hunting, where at first were you a little bit leery of, you know, I don't know if I like this or not. Or did you, I'm a whitetail guy. And then when you got there, what was the re reality of it then as far as how you felt? Uh, well, this is another tip that everybody should, should think about. I wish I would have went west way younger. And why? Because for you to spot and stalk with a bow and kill anything, I don't care what, what you're hunting your skill sets have to be a hell of a lot better than doing in whitetails because you got to move. And when you got to move, you got to move, you know, the right time, got to lose terrain, trees, whatever your advantage, uh, you know, be still, draw at the right time, let down, whatever it may be. It just changes your whole, your whole skill sets and you got to be a different skill sets. I have no doubt 
I went on my first elk hunt when I was, I think it was 32, and it was purely a fluke. It was a friend of mine uh, who had been going for the same camp for years, and he knew I was a junkie, and he said, have you ever gone west? I said, no, it's my dream to go elk hunting. And I said, hey, if you ever have a cancellation, because he, he had so many guys, he had six guys so that when he went to the camp, he owned the camp, all of them was his buddies, and it was his favorite place. I said, you know, I, I don't know where to start, don't know where to go. And he says, well, one of these years, I'm sure one of these guys will back out. And one year they did. He called me up with three weeks' notice and said, this guy canceled, can't go you in. I said, hell yes, I'm in. He goes, but here's the problem, Greg. I'm afraid to take you because knowing you, you'll never miss a September in the mountains again. And he was right. He was right. I went there after three days. I didn't have a bull down. I didn't care. I said, his name was Mark. I said, Mark, I can go home right now. I've never had the best time of my life. And I think if I could do it over again, I wish I would have done it in my 20s. Because once you start going on the ground, spotting stock and mule deer or elk or whatever you're going to do out west, your skill sets are going to magnify and speed up so much quicker. And it's made me a hell of a lot better whitetail hunter now. And you got to see some beautiful country while you're doing it and, and chasing oh, incredible animals. Yeah, I love, I love the West. Absolutely love it. Love it. It's my favorite. Honestly, to be truthful, if my wife said I only had one week to go, it would be late September in the mountains. I would not go whitetail hunting. Is that right? She said a, I only got one week. Man, that says Just a lot. I love it. I, it's, it's the scenery. Mm -hmm. I mean, it clears the soul. Every time I come home, I'm in a better mood. Yeah. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it's just, it's the closest thing to, to the creator I've ever been with being two feet on the ground. It sure is. I, I agree with you. Beautiful country. It's amazing. And to go see a, a 900, <laughs> you know, a thousand pound elk bugling. Oh my God. It's nuts. It's crazy. Was your Canada trip this year, was that your first time to Canada when you went to Alberta? Or It you... was. Yep. Yep, first time. You know, Shed, uh, if he could pick a hunt, Shed likes to hunt hogs with a knife. He likes to get up close and personal. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. Really? Tell him, Shed. I went, I went, all, I went all weekend. With a knife? Well, I, well, we have dogs. We catch them with dogs and just stick them with a knife. So the dogs pin them down, probably bite their ear, and I suppose when they yep. bite their ear, they, they probably freeze, I'm guessing, or relatively freeze. Yep. And then you jump in with a 10, 12 inch crocodile Dundee knife <laughs> and go at it. I mean, close to that. Yeah. And you don't get hurt? No. Not too. I mean, I never have. I know people that have, but I haven't. Is there many people that uh, do that shed like you do? Is there many people that. There's a decent amount. They, down here, I mean, we got a lot of hogs. I mean, I've had them in my yard before. So, and we, we got a good many down here it just depends if, on if you had anybody that's got a, that, that one's got a hold of got to cut them up with their tusks um, i had a buddy of mine he got run over one time and broke his leg i mean he broke it bad enough the bone was sticking out and i had to carry him about half a mile out of the woods i know some guys have lost fingers just having up around the pig's head when they're trying to get him tied or something to reach over and bite a finger off you give Tim Wells a run for his money. But other than that, I don't know. I mean, I've been in some situations where I could have got hurt, but didn't. Just got lucky, I guess. Or, you know, was quick enough to get out of the road. But, no, I I, I haven't got hurt. But, I, I mean, 
don't really know other than broken leg and a couple fingers missing. You know, nobody getting pretty, killed or mauled. By one. Pretty big adrenaline rush for you, Shed. Is that? Oh yeah. Have to have to be. It's like like you know, there ain't much. Just like when a big deer comes in, you get your heart racing and thumping, and I mean it'll it'll test you at times. Oh yeah. I would buy a ticket to that show. I don't think I'm going to jump on stage. Hey, I'd be standing there with I'm, you, Greg. I ain't jumping ticket in. Ticket for a 200 inch deer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I bet you would. I bet you would. But oh, no, it, it's fun. I mean, I grew up with coon dogs, and then I had some bear dogs, and then moved down here. And deer hunting sucks compared to growing up in Ohio. So. I mean, we got a lot of deer, just not the what I, was it the job that took you down there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I, I moved down here, when I went to work for Mossy Oak, that's what I thought. And uh, but I grew up in Ohio, so I mean, it was grew up in one of the best counties in the state, and yeah, I mean, it's hard it's hard to beat. And you move south, and do you go back home much? Yeah, yeah, I hunt up there every year. Do you? Rising has a couple places I hunt. He takes care of. And uh, I'm good buddies with him. So he, he actually, from where my parents live to where he lives, maybe as a crow flies, 30 miles, 35 miles. Oh, so, so it's close. Yeah, yeah. That's nice. I mean, we, we've hunted. I mean, he's got places in the same county I grew up in and places I knew about. So it's I, I enjoy going back up there. But last, I've killed a pretty good buck up there the last three out of four years. Good for you. Well, Greg, we appreciate cool. you you taking the time. I feel like we've really just hit the tip of the iceberg with you, to be honest. Uh, but we got to shut her down at some point because we got to let you get on with your life and your evening. <laughs> oh, but, I actually uh, set my whole side. Of, I was on a podcast last week. We shut it down after an hour and forty-five minutes. We talked for another four. <laughs> I had five hours and forty-five minutes on my phone, and these guys they just they wouldn't they couldn't cut me loose. And yeah. I said, hey, you know what, I I cancel the night so if i'm off the phone at 10 or 11 i don't care i because the more i talk the more you know you draw information from those guys too and i learn too you know it's it's not a one-sided conversation right. so There's... it's this is how we all get better right you know, these podcast things are, are are great because i listen to them i don't listen to radio anymore if i'm traveling i listen to i think six or seven of your guys is on the way down today and five or six others on the way down. I just, one podcast after another, if I'm going to sit in a car and do something, I'm going to, you know, kind of extract information and kind of tighten up my game a little bit. That's what I, I've evolved to. The, the, the podcast world has, has helped learning a bunch. I used to, I was, if I went on a long trip, country music was playing the whole time. Get to, get to sing along a little bit with it and enjoy it, but you're not learning much there. You know, so the opportunities are good to, for a lot of different content out there and uh whether it's murder mysteries that you can listen to or uh, garage whatever you listen to shed and some of the ones i do or there's there's no topic that you can't find out there that you can keep you entertained or learn something about but greg i, I appreciate you greatly for taking the time to, to spend with us like i say i think we've we've just hit the tip of the iceberg with you your your wealth of knowledge we you're a heck of a good guy bucks you've killed lately have, have really separated yourself and and we course hadn't even hit on all the private you know the 160s and 70s that you killed along the way that those get don't get mentioned which uh, again a mature bucks a mature buck whether he's 125 or whether he's whether he's 225 and so you know you've, you kill a lot of those uh, uh, along the way and it's helped you get to where you where you are today but we sure appreciate you 
uh, taking the time with us. Any any closing words, Shed? No, just bring your pocket knife to Mississippi and you'll put him to work on a on a hog. Yeah, we can do that anytime. <laughs> but yeah, keep killing them big ones because you've got definitely, you know, you've got a spot that most people I know are jealous of. I am because <laughs> we don't have them where I live. Well, a lot of it is is you know finding finding the right spot, but it's also you got to create the spot too. Like I said, oh yeah previous owner didn't kill anything bigger than 175 inches and he had it for a long time and that's why he sold it he said this this farm will never do it and he moved on he bought another farm 30 40 miles away and i just want to put the pedal to the metal and truly find out what it could do and i guess you really don't know until you really try you know the solar staying is is what if well the what if will always be there until you take away the what if that's right and it's worked and now we're taking that recipe and duplicating it and it's it's working elsewhere so it's all about providing food 365 and water and top quality food and high protein and don't give them a, ruse, a reason to leave and now you just got to give time and that's one thing that is tough but you got to let them go and a lot of those guys won't make it but what if they do Greg, is there anything from your standpoint in closing that we didn't ask that you think is important that uh, something you'd like to, to convey or communicate? You know, I, I've been lucky enough to to be part of the DOD team for as long as I have. And, and you know, I, they've given me a platform to expose what I'm doing. And it's, you know, to say thanks to them is, is an understatement. I really appreciate what they do for me. But I, I think the part that I've seen that frustrates me is coming from the social media place is, you know, we, we really have a lot to, to, to lose as a outdoor lifestyle. And for us to push down somebody that shoots a 130 or 120 or 110, you know what, if that makes your heart move, who tells you that you shouldn't, you know, and these people that, you know, say that, Hey, you should have let them pass. You know what? everybody goes through the elevation or evolves as hunters right and that time doesn't mean you could be old you could be young but that evolution doesn't change meaning that that guy may start at 45 and he hasn't he hasn't gone through that elevator that uh, that different steps of, of a hunter of you know when i first started i want to kill everything it didn't matter what it was and then you start figuring out and you become a student of the game and now you it's more about raising them and understanding them and those things, but that takes time. You have to evolve through that process. And I wish we were, I wish we were better at supporting each, each other, regardless of what we're doing. If you're in the woods and you're doing your thing, you know what, support the guy left and guy right. And we've got enough enemies out there to fight with, you know, who I'm talking about, you know, we need to stay united culture and a united front and let's stay together. And I, I wish we did more of that stuff. Some of the stuff is egos getting our way. And unfortunately, Shed, I know you you know more a lot of, more about this than I do, but we just need to be more supportive than pushing people down. It's getting worse and worse. Social media is about the I, not about the we. Got we've lost that. And when someone reaches out to me, and that's why I felt so bad when you reached out to me, Joby, of, on that Facebook thing. I felt so bad because if someone's going to have enough time and effort and respect myself 
and want me to talk, uh, heck, I'm all in. You know, it's it's an honor, it's a privilege to share knowledge and, and be asked. It's a it's it's truly a blessing, and I appreciate it. And if you ever guys will ever want to do this again, I'll be the first to sign up. Just don't Facebook me. Send me a text <laughs> or or DM me because I do not do Facebook. Uh, I I love helping other people in this outdoor space as much as I can. If that's getting on a podcast to support them and their ventures, then heck, I'm all in. Great. Well, Greg, we sure appreciate it. Very well stated. Uh, it's time that we, as a society, uh, as a country, quit casting stones at other people. You know, if that's the case, we'd all be stoned and dead. <laughs> None of us could stand. None of us are free from from that and, and support one another. You know, so very very well said on your part. But and and we're you. all we're all Monday morning quarterbacks, that's right? right? That's right. It's easy to be Monday, but who shows up on Sunday? Would you have made that decision on Sunday? But you're sure easy to critic on Monday. Mm-hmm. But I'm not so sure you'd execute it either. So don't put your fellow guy down when you don't when you haven't been there and done it yourself anyway. These crazy egotistical guys hiding behind keyboards. It's it's tough out there. It's tough to to be successful in any type of thing you're doing with a stick and strain. So don't don't be a critical. Well, Greg, hey, thank you again, Shed. We'll we'll talk at you in a day or so. Yeah. All right. We'll see Take y'all. Care. Thank you. Thank you for spending time today with Shed and I and our guest, Mr. Greg Glessinger of Drury Outdoors. Greg is recognized and highly respected as someone who is highly knowledgeable, prepared, has a strong work ethic, and an eye for detail. As a result, Greg has taken several Boone and Crockett bucks, with three of them scoring over 200 inches. You can find more information about Greg and his three 200-inch bucks, extra innings, triple play, and major league, as well as many other successful hunts he's had through his Instagram page at Greg Glessinger, and also on juryoutdoors.com, DeerCast, and My Outdoor TV. Please assist Shed and I by liking and rating today's episode and by subscribing to the Foshi Creek Podcast. We are not a sponsored podcast, so the only way we can reach a broader audience is by word of mouth and the number of subscriptions, likes, and positive ratings that we receive. Please share our content on your social media platforms with all your hunting and outdoor friends. Thank you again for listening, and as always, we learned everything we knew down on Foshi Creek.